We're good. Great. So it's a great pleasure tonight to introduce uh, Ray Ozzie. Uh, Ray will uh, sort of go through his career with you, so I won't belabor uh, it here. But the really important thing is he's been doing uh, collaborative software since he was an undergraduate at the University of Illinois in the 1970s, where Plato was really the sort of granddaddy of uh, all the collaboration and uh, computerized learning systems. So, uh, Ray has gone through uh, a number of jobs, into Lotus, out of Lotus, into startups. Uh, two years ago or so, Microsoft acquired Groove, which is uh, his most recent startup. And he became one of the CTOs at Microsoft and uh, recently was uh, named Chief Software Architect title. So, Ray, thanks for being with us. Yep. Very nice. Thanks. To be here. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming. Um, glad I made it. It was a little sketchy. Um, so what I thought I would do is just more or less give you a, um, a walkthrough of, uh, of my career, basically, and, and just tell some stories about uh, what happened starting in, uh, when I was back at school. Because I think at least my perspective on collaborative software and collaboration is you know, essentially heavily weighted by the experiences that, that I've had and um, maybe you'll see some of uh, some of my perspectives because of those those uh, those experiences I would really really appreciate it if you would just interrupt me if you've got something that you want me to go deeper on or riff on and uh, um, otherwise I'll just keep keep plugging away at it so um, anyway this this kind of gives the high-level view of what I'm gonna, gonna going to uh, step through uh, I was an undergrad at University of Illinois, and then I went off uh, to uh, uh, Data General, which I'll talk about, uh, which was at the time a, a fairly uh, um, an up-and-coming super mini computer company that was trying to compete with DAC, which uh, uh, was trying to compete with IBM. Um, uh, software Arts, uh, we'll talk about, but they're, they're most uh, widely known for being the creators of VisiCalc, which you may or may not have heard of. Lotus, from, uh, uh, who was most famous for 123. Um, Iris, I'll talk to you about in a minute, but that was a startup that I did um, uh, as kind of a spin out um, uh, from Lotus, then Groove, my latest thing, and then kind of where I am. So where it, where it starts is um, probably, what was this, maybe not, uh, 70, 74, I believe, um, uh, at University of Illinois. Uh, this is the uh, I, I've got a bunch of pictures, and I'm just going to use them as uh, uh, eye candy um, uh, to help me through the story. But um, uh, this was the Department of the, the kind of newly christened Department of Computer Science. Um, uh, I guess it had been going for a few years. As the, uh, I, I started, I think, the second year that they had a computer science major uh, in engineering, and um, uh, uh, you know there was there there were the kind the what it was like to be an undergrad in computer science at that point in time was, as we were just, uh, 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 and I were just talking about, it was uh, Model 29 key punches, uh, submitting card decks to IBM 360s, doing machine problems, getting, you know, going out and getting pizza, coming back, uh, you know, collecting your listing out of a box, uh, you know, uh, uh, after it had been processed. Um, 
And I, you know, I, I, at the time, I was, uh, you know, kind of struggling to get through school. I think the uh, the, the tuition at the time was two hundred and seventy-five dollars a semester. <laughs> Room and board was a little bit more expensive. Um, uh, uh, and I was a, a programmer at um, uh, uh, Department of Nuclear Engineering. Uh, uh, used this thing called Lockheed Sioux, which was a mini computer at the time. But directly across the street from uh, Department of uh, Computer Science was this building, this really strange looking building with a tower next to it. And um, this thing, I don't know if you guys can see the, uh, yeah, a little dark. Um, but but um, uh, this thing was uh, uh, called the Computer-Based Education Re Research Lab. And I, it had nothing to do with the Department of Computer Science. But every time I walked by this building, um, I would see people sitting at these terminals that looked like this, these big, clunky, boxy terminals with orange, this orange glow uh, coming out of the screens. And remember, this is an era where I'm using punch cards uh, to submit decks to, to the computer, yet these people are sitting in front of these, these terminal, graphics terminals. And I had seen storage terminals back in, uh, 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 on the, in my computer science stuff, which were, they looked like big oscilloscopes that retained uh, images on them. But this thing, you know, when I kind of peered over people's shoulders, um, they were doing some amazing stuff, and it was, uh, um, uh, as, as I'll explain uh, further, um, this system, these were terminals on a connected to a centralized system called PLATO, and, and that's an acronym for Programmed Logic for Automated Teaching Operations. Um, and these uh, stretch. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know how it is. You reverse engineer the acronym out of it. Um, and, and in essence, uh, what kids were doing uh, was uh, what students were doing. Right, can you go back one slide. Oh, for sure, that? sure. So is, th is that the back end of terminals facing the other? Terminals? Yeah, this is the back side of the terminal. And what you're not here, what you're not experiencing here, and I'll show you why in a minute was was these, these labs that these things were in. There were several of them on campus, but when you walked in, there was this background noise. And, and later on, and I'll explain to you why, it, it's compressed air. These things took power and they took compressed air. And you wonder why, but you'll see in a second. Um, but yeah, there were these, these big monster terminals, and um, uh, well, I'll, show, I'll, I'll talk to you more about that in a sec. The, what you would see on the screen is something like this. This was a, uh, a fairly classic les lesson on, on Plato that they used for, uh, for teaching, and um, uh, this thing was a fruit fly lesson, and you would uh, learn about uh, you know, genetics uh, basically by essentially playing a little game and, and learning uh, uh, you know how things combine and you know um, essentially I don't know if you can see this little arrow here uh, is a prompt and somebody's saying yes female parent you know and, and whatever and you can you can see it's you can probably imagine it was a fairly compelling thing at the time especially for people who uh, you know use punch cards this guy was the guy who uh, uh, invented Plato his name is Don Bitzer and he was a creative eccentric who really believed that computers could be used as, might be able to be used as a, as a way of assisting the teaching process. He was not a computer scientist, he, he was an educator. And this was Plato One. Um, it was in 68, and uh, uh, this 
thing here. Um, I mean, this was probably, I don't know what computer this was, uh, this was connected to, probably a Burroughs or something. Um, but he experimented in a very controlled way, did research on, on you know, what would it be like to create lessons and, and what would the, the structure of those lessons be and what kinds of impact, uh, you know, could it potentially have. You know, he, he experimented with different kinds of keyboards at the time. Um, you know, you can just imagine the computational horsepower that, you know, that was necessary to put up that one screen right there. Um, but eventually he decided to, he wanted to get a grant and he got a grant to try to um, uh, build this system and he knew he needed to build a terminal to do this, a graphics terminal. But graphics terminals were way expensive at the time and what was really prohibitive was memory, memory to back up the, the display, the persistent display. Sorry, this has nothing to do with collaboration, but you might enjoy it, it's amusing. So he, he and uh, three other guys uh, went and decided that they needed to create a display that had memory built into it because of the physics of the display. So he invented this little thing, and that's called the plasma panel. Um, it's, it's the plasma panel behind the TVs that you use in your homes. And this is the first plasma panel of, what is that? How many pixels? 64 by 64 or something? 16 by 16? 16, 16, 16 by 16. It's got U of I in there. Um, but that, but you know, he invented it in, s specifically so that to build this terminal, and you know, you would drive it in such a way that it would, you know, you'd turn on the pixel and it would just stay there. You could actually read it back if you really wanted to. But this was a a, a really big deal. And after a few years, they fabricated, you know, an actual, you know, decent-sized plasma panel. And this is the the one that that ended up going into production. Um, as a 512 by 512 uh, plasma panel. Um, around that plasma panel, uh, he basically invented this thing called a touch screen. And it was essentially a, line of, a row of LEDs and detectors and that could detect uh, with a fairly coarse grain where your finger was. You couldn't draw on it, but you could point at something in a, in a fairly crude way. And then, you know, kind of built up a terminal out of it um, and the reason these terminals are so boxy is because, in essence, the, um, what he wanted to have was a multimedia terminal. And you know, the, the kind of graphics he can do with 512 by 512 wasn't enough for him, so he put a microfiche projector in. And essentially, what you're going to see in a minute is that there is a, 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 this random access, uh, you know, a light source that would project through the microfiche onto the ground glass on the back of the plasma panel and and essentially the software you know could uh, uh, you know could select a slide to project on the back and then the then the, the, the graphics could overlay on top of it so this is uh, you know this is done at one of the early terminals and this is more or less a complete terminal I've got this terminal at home actually it's kind of fun. Um, uh, um, so this is, a, this is a typical student, and this is the, Plato was initially deployed to junior high school students, um, uh, to grammar school students, then it went down to kindergarten, then junior high, then high school, then university, um, just trying different, different types of lessons. You see the headphones that the kid, ha that, that, that he has on, well here, here he's putting in a microfiche that goes along with a student lesson. This thing right here is a, um, a, a disc, a magnetic disc 
it was a big floppy without the, uh, the, the, the carrier that went along with that lesson. And there were synchronized audio and, and fiche um, you know, uh, uh, pictures that went along. And I'm sorry, the compressed air was there to drive the microfiche. It had to be under compressed air. So you'd, you'd hear this, the, this steady hum of the, of the air pump in the background in any, every one of these labs. And then when somebody would switch slides in the lesson, it would go chunk chunk, and then you know the, the slide would select, and uh, the audio was synchronized, and so on. So anyway, it um, that paneling, I love that paneling. Um, so can I make a couple of quick yeah, comments? Yeah, sure. This just context, and again, has nothing to do with collaboration. Well, one is computer graphics in the '60s and '70s was largely completely non-interactive. Yeah. Okay, so people who did interactive graphics would say they did interactive graphics. So it's like plotting things on CalComp plotters. Right. So that's how revolutionary this was. Setting aside all the education stuff, the idea was you were going to interact with the graphics. That's right. The other thing is something Butler Lance, I think, when he was talking, this is back to the memory cost thing, is that what caused Chuck Thacker to finally build the Alto mm -hmm. was he just had a graph of memory prices, mm -hmm. okay? And he knew there was going to be a point in time when the memory needed to back the bitmap display would be less than half the cost of the overall terminal. Right. And a year ahead of that, he started designing. Yep. Okay, but that's the that's memory place. Memory was just a, it was a very big deal. Right. Very, very big deal. And you don't even think about it now, right? I mean, I remember right. this is much later than that, but in like 1980 here, we horn deck into giving us a special deal on uh, an additional 512K of memory for that fax downstairs, right. and it was $35,000 yeah, for 512K. Right, right, right. And the final thing is, back then, everybody was using mainframes as PCs, which is sort of what this was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was time-sharing, but roughly enormous amounts of computing power. That's right. And one of the problems with mobile computing, okay, so, you, so for decades, we could use money as a time machine to bring mm -hmm. us to where we'd be 10 years and therefore invent the software. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was doing. Right. You can't use money to buy you a mobile form factor and extra battery life without getting clunky and things right. like that. So in some sense, a reason that we have trouble dealing with envisioning the software for mobile devices and ubiquitous computing is there's no way to envision the future because right. you can't spend a ton of money to buy what you'll have in 10 that's, years. That's right, that's right, yeah. This exactly. is how we, we live for decades by right. wasting money that's right. to project forward. That's right, and a lot of money it was. The the Just so that you understand the architecture of what uh, what you're looking at here, these, these terminals um, were connected. I mean, they were in today's dollars, they'd probably be, I'm guessing, ten to $12,000 easily per terminal. I mean, it, just because it's a limited run plasma panel, you know, they got Owens, Illinois to, you know, to make these things. They got Magnavox to, you know, to do the short run on these, these terminals. Um, when I showed up, uh, in when I started using it in 74, it was about 500 of these terminals. Um, uh, uh, Roughly 300 of them on campus, the rest of them in pockets of four terminals worldwide at universities worldwide, from Moscow to you know Australia to here and there. All of them had um, uh, dedicated communication lines. Each terminal had a 1,200 uh, bit per second serial line uh, going to it. The reason there was that tower next to the building was that was microwave to the phone company facility uh, to get 
communications with the people, you know, with these other uh, uh, places worldwide. God only knows what those those tie lines, you know, cost. Um, the terminals were connected to a centralized mainframe, a CDC cyber, a 6500, uh, which was a a dual processor. Um, uh, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with these ancient architectures, but two processors, 128K, 60-bit words, one's complement. Um, uh, we hadn't settled on two's complement yet. We hadn't settled on 8-bit bytes yet. Um, uh, you know, 10 PPUs, uh, peripheral processors, which are I.O. processors. And anyway, so it was a centralized time-sharing system with dedicated software uh, uh, for this for this system. But, but the reason you could support 500s is these things were in many ways largely autonomous. The displays maintained themselves. There was the rear well, protection. Well, so. yeah, it was it was sort of like this. You had the main you had the mainframe. We had a hardware group, and the hardware group was the group that did all of the, the terminal hardware and did all of the custom hardware that sat next to the, the mainframe. What there were were banks of, of modems, in essence, and then multiplexers so that eventually it could all channel down to one, you know, one I.O. channel that the, this peripheral processing unit could do. And essentially, it, this thing was sending out, I think it was 12-bit 12 12-bit 12 packets that are like characters to the, to the terminal. And the terminal had memory in, the, in its screen. So every you know, keystroke would go up and every, you know, and, and that might result in a few, you know, some, some text coming down. Um, if I could interrupt real quick uh, from Microsoft. Apparently, they're going to uh, be testing the fire alarm system tonight. <laughs> so I'm going to turn our microphones off over here so that we don't interrupt. Uh, okay. Interrupt. We have a question. Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So by the time, as I said, by the time I got there, there were probably uh, there were probably 300 terminals on campus. This is what the foreign language building looked like. Foreign language was. The, the, I, I would love to show you, I mean, th this is an amazing piece of history. I think we're going to do a, a, something down at the Computer Museum this uh, uh, next year uh, about it. But the, the amount of courseware was staggering, even at that point in time. Um, you know, these were, uh, the, one of the big things in the foreign language was English as a second language. Um, and a lot of students uh, went through, through lessons on, on these things. So I saw this thing. As a computer science student, I said, I want that. I want to work on that. It looked like a lot more fun than doing, uh, than, you know, right, compilers and, you know, things like that, submitting decks. So I went in and I begged and I begged and I begged and I begged and I did everything that, that you would do to, you know, if you, if you wanted a job. There, it, as it turned out, that uh, um, there was a project that the nascent hardware group was working on, and I had happened to have some experience because of my, uh, uh, I was a double E turned computer science person, and I had d done some work with a 4040 and an 8080, and so, and I had written some, uh, uh, some firmware and software for those things. So w they were just experimenting with building this thing, which was the first programmable terminal. It had a, um, it had a Z80 in it, the very first uh, you know, uh, uh, Z80 that, that came out uh, very early on. We knew a lot of people at Zilog. And 
this thing needed needed firmware to emulate what the uh, soft what the TTL based boards the hardware you know within the the the, the big terminal uh, was doing this one gave up on the um, uh, the projection in this particular model but they were trying to do a low cost uh, you know a much low cost reduced terminal so so I, they hired me as a, as a systems programmer this was kind of the 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 you know the the, the kind of a subset of the Motley crew. There were about 15 of us, uh, you know, who were system programmers. There's the you know the cyber you know in the in the background there. Um, uh, but but they it was fun times, and you know you'd do what uh, what you guys would do if you were systems programmers. The kind of gods on a system that had all these users every every day. Um, the uh, it, there was prime time and non-prime time. Prime time was when students were supposed to use the system. Non-prime time was when system programmers got to take down the system, bring up test versions, and so on. And it was still very rude to crash it because there were hundreds and hundreds of users. Um, but essentially, they told students, "Don't use it in non-prime time. It's test time." You know, it's it's it, and so. During during that that non-prime time, we we wrote a lot of stuff, and there were essentially as users on the on the on the on of the terminals, there were two modes. There was student mode and author mode, and this is important to understand. Author mode were, was was the mode that you would use the system in, um, where you were programming the lessons, and and it was mostly research assistants and people like that who were actually learning the, the, the language and it was a scripting language um, that was that was called Tutor that was more or less a very easy to use language for, for uh, non-professionals to write these um, these lessons in and people did really funny stuff in it you know we as systems programmers were writing in compass the assembly language but um, uh, uh, the lesson writers were um, you know, we're getting more and more and more creative, and they were the ones, the primary users during this non-prime time. Um, they started writing some simple games. Um, not, you know, they the, people would start to experiment, not just doing lessons on the system, doing, you know, trying to do interactive games. And so, and as systems programmers, we put in a few very key primitives that let you sh have essentially shared memory between uh, processes between multiple users so people started doing very very simple games a little a little space world like game this one the little maze game and so on one of the best early games was a, uh, done by a guy by the name of Brand Fortner called Airfight he was a physics major and he 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 thought my gosh maybe this thing would let me model the physics of an actual aircraft and so he did a really really good uh, rendering uh, first as a, a single-user system, then immediately thereafter as a multi-user game where it had two airports, the circles and the triangles, and you would go into the game, and this, this thing here is the stick, and here are the pedals, and you would use you know this key and that key and push the pedal in and out, and you would take off, and you had to really learn. The different planes had different dynamics, and you would take off at an airport. Uh, it might interest you to know that that is now known as Flight Simulator. Um, the Bruce Artwick was on Plato, saw that, you experienced a lot, and that's there's the direct lineage um, to that uh, uh, to that program. It's basically the the, the same thing. Um, but many many very advanced games, um, massive 
today we'd call it a massively multiplayer game, but I think you know we're we're talking about hundreds of users, not hundreds of concurrent users. Um, very intense gaming culture uh, developed on the system. Um, uh, so you know, and and there were. Um, Pseudonyms are pretty good too. Oh yeah, there. It's all it, we. <laughs> We who were on this system, and there were tens of thousands of us, uh, um, uh, we, got, we were fortunate enough to have had an early peek at many of the things that we all take for granted right now on the internet. Um, <laughs> online community being you know, the most significant one. You know, people uh, you know, met online, established relationships online. Who was Pork Pumper? <laughs> Number 28. <laughs> I don't know. Twinkle toes, we got it all. Suicide jockey. Yeah, right. Well, actually, this is interesting because you can look at the group also and see this is more like the domain name. Um, and uh, uh, lots of Indiana University, New York. Uh, uh, what is PFW? I forget. Purdue or no something Fort Wayne, etc. Et you get the idea. Um, but one of the most, finally getting into collaboration, one of the most well-used things that, that developed on the system was called notes. And uh, the, uh, it was referred to as notes, but there were really two varieties of it that were connected, one called general notes and one called personal notes. Personal notes is email, general notes were online discussions. And, you know, this is a, and you know an example of you know po the the popular files on at at Searle, the computer-based education research lab. So you know interpersonal relationships was number one. You know philosophy and religion, current events, public notes was more or less the general announcements, sex, you know jobs, things like that. So so um, Actually, this is a little late. This is 78 to 92, so this is this is not from that era. But you get the idea. Um, uh, and and in addition to notes, there was this thing called um, well, this uh, this is actually what the detail level of a of a given public note would be. And um, uh, there were also two things: one called term talk, and one called talkomatic. Term talk was this thing. There was a button, a key called term, and the concept, Don Bitzer's concept was, if you ever got confused in a lesson about a term that you saw, you could always hit the term key. A little prompt would come up, no matter what you were doing. Down here, would erase what was there, put this thing, what term, and you'd type in the term that you didn't understand, and it would give a definition. But we 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 enhanced it to do other functions, and there were special system terms. One of them was talk, and essentially it was I am. Um, uh, you could, it would erase the bottom two lines, and you could type to another user. You'd, you'd, you'd type in their name, and if they were online, you'd, you'd just start typing to one another. And there was this other thing called Talkomatic, which was uh, 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 online forums. Um, just a little aside, one of the um, you know, as a systems programmer, I worked on projects with other people, and one of the projects that I worked on, um, uh, uh, there was this guy who was uh, who they, my boss told me he was the project leader of this thing, and I had to I, I should communicate with him, contact him by through notes, and find out what he wanted me to do. Uh, it was this logo interpreter, so we um, uh, I worked probably I don't know weeks and weeks. It was 
probably about six or eight weeks on this project with him. Never met him face to face. Um, you know, I, I communicated with him through, um, uh, you know, through email, through these notes. Very eloquent guy. Um, I, I used this I am thing with him, and he was just an incredibly slow typist. It was just very frustrating. This term talk thing showed you character by character as you were typing. Really, really, really slow. Very frustrating. But he was very, uh, spoke very eloquently. When the project was over, I met him. I, I ended up going to his home for this party. There were about a dozen people who were involved in this project. And the reason why he was such a slow typist was he was a quadriplegic. And I had no idea. He was typing with a stick. And that was kind of a defining moment for me, if there, if there ever was one. I, 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 it really caused me to reflect because of the fact that I had not, I had been talking mind to mind with this guy. And, you know, this, that, it, it just leaves such an, Im it left such an impact on me that, that in essence, the, the, the computer was really doing better, probably, for me in that project, um, in terms of working with that person, than had I, the, you know, done it face to face. A, because he couldn't do it face to face. He was not mobile enough to get, get over there. Um, and B, I had had prejudices about, about you know, uh, I mean, I, if you reflect upon it, I would have seen him and said, how could this guy do this? And, and he did. And so um, for years and years thereafter, um, it, this just kind of stuck with me, this notion of online community. My best friend met this girl in Denver. Uh, you know, they were boyfriend and girlfriend. They would fly, you know, back and forth to see one another. And all the things that you would, you know, see in terms of online community now, except maybe the, the, the old gray-haired guys on MySpace. You know, I don't think there's that. I don't think it went that far. But um, uh, it, it really developed as a, you know, as a community. Um, about that time, probably, probably around the, probably 78 or so, I was sitting in the machine room, again, that's the console, by this time we had two uh, Cyber 175s, um, uh, uh, I, I had been sitting around there and somebody had left a copy of this um, publication that you probably have never heard of, but it was, um, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's called Computer Lib and Dream Machines, and uh, this wacko by the name of Ted Nelson um, uh, wrote it. And it was a really interesting book. You can't see this. Uh, one side, this is that's the back cover. This is the front cover, and one was upside down from the other. So it was really two books. You'd you know you'd read one one way and flip it over. But essentially. It was, this was just coming out of the 60s and, you know, and, and the whole Earth catalog had been through several revs and, and um, it was, you know, computer as a the computer as a liberating tool, a, you know, a tool that, that eventually will change the world, you know, for all of us as a communication device, as this <laughs> device, as an entertainment device. And so that was the dream machines part of it, you know, that was more the hardware side and this was more the what could it do to society, you know, kind of thing. And, um, one of the things that 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 was amazing to me was I found out that there were things going on all over the place, not just at, at, at Plato, but people were starting to had been thinking since you know the, the the 60s about some of these concepts, and 
you know, I was introduced to the concepts of, 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 well, Ted Nelson, sorry, I guess I should say, if you don't know, he's the guy who invented hypertext. He, um, a lot of the concepts laid out in here, you know, he basically laid out the, the, this vision of many, many people using terminals, you know, with cr creating text, you know, that would be interlinked at very fine grained. It, it's not today's web because they were bi-directional links. They were always bi-directional, re, you know, references. You could always chase references back. Um, uh, but it, it was fascinating. But in that book, he referenced things that Doug Engelbart did. And, and the de this particular this demo in 68, that if you haven't seen it on the web, you really, really ought to take a look. There's a video uh, that, that you can watch. Um, uh, that where where Doug really demoed pretty much everything that I've worked on since that point in time. He demoed um, uh, essentially remote collaboration. Um, you know, the, the, there you could draw on the screen together. You could pull down a window and see a video conference with the person that you know that you were working with on the other side. It was just you know really. Uh, uh, ahead of its time, uh, and his concept was using technology to augment human intellect, and also JCR Licklider. Um, uh, uh, again, there's this one little paper you can download that that you should read because it's just stunning. Uh, the paper is the computer as a communication device, and you know they were just sketches at the time, but he talked about it as a communication medium and what it you know what it might do. And this really turned me on. I mean, the more that I would think about it, and I mean, we would, uh, a, a number of us who were working on the system really started to say, wow, this thing that we're encountering on Plato, people aren't actually, we're building it and we're living it in an applied sense, and other people are thinking about it from a research sense. Wow, if we could just get together and talk about this stuff, it would be really good. Um, so in, can I one, yeah. one more thing? So I, I tried asking, Wozniak this question, he didn't take the bait, but I had a bunch of friends from the late 60s who were undergrads with me. Bob Wallace is the best known one who eventually was employee number nine at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And it's back to viewing the computer as an empowerment device mm -hmm. and software as empowerment. You mm -hmm. know, so a whole bunch of stuff actually came out of that culture. And actually Markov is going to talk in the class oh, that's great. after Thanksgiving about that's his great. sort of drugs book and mm -hmm. things like that. But these people really did view computers as empowerment, and in many ways, the idea of charging for software, mm -hmm. as opposed to freeware and then a fee for support and stuff like that, was uh, offensive to guys like Wallace, which caused him to leave Microsoft. But mm -hmm. it was really, it was out of this notion that this was this empowering technology that was going to be liberating to people. Yeah, well, that was that. that it was. It, it is hard to put yourself back there. I mean, there were the '60s, and then. In this, and then there was the war, you know. I mean, and and you know, you felt there there was the man, and you yeah, just yeah, yeah. Wa you know, you just wanted to uh, the fact that you could touch this thing, you could program it, you could do things with it, you could talk with people, you could build things. It was a pl it, it's a plastic medium. If you had a concept of doing something, you could build that thing with your friends without. Having to go get funny money from the the computing office, we used you know we they would allocate computing time by giving you you know uh, funny money um, right. you know four dollars and seventy six cents. This job costs sixty seven cents. Uh, now totally off the subject, the way mm -hmm. we used to get Van Dam's hypertext research done mm -hmm. in Brown in the late sixties was 
third shift, right? Mm -hmm. But they charged for it, and we didn't have money to pay for it. So what we would do every morning around 6 a.m. is run a job that would crash the system, taking with it the whole night's accounting record. Oh, that's <laughs> And the operator would let that's us do this. There was this woman, I still remember her 35 years later, named Grace. And she was the third shift operator. She would let us man. crash the machine at 6.30 every morning. And the reason was we made her daughter the champion Girl Scout cookie sales girl in the state of Rhode Island. Gorging on Girl Scout cookies. You know, right. that. Grace let us blow off the accounting records. That's wonderful. That's how we kept the program That's going. wonderful. That's <laughs> great. That's great. There's so many stories in there because people had to, had to improvise yeah. if they wanted to. So, so before I left Plato, a number, a, sm a handful <coughs> of of people who were had been assistance programmers for a while, really were starting to think a little bit more abstractly about what was going on from a community perspective and from a, a, a cooperative work perspective. Um, I don't think I had read the term computer-supported cooperative work at the time, but that was really the nature of what um, of, of the, the discussions. And, and what we were really kind of trying to ponder was what lies at the juncture of technology organizations and people, meaning you know, uh, you can do you could do technology for people to help people communicate, but and that's what we were doing on Plato. But the theory, when we were starting to read some of these other papers, were wow, maybe people in organizations could use these things to start to do things like we did projects, you know, programming projects with other people. Maybe there was a use for this this kind of technology within you know corporate America but we were students we didn't really understand corporate America anyway um, so one of the things that was really innovative about Plato was you built in this tutor kind of abstraction programming language yep which gave people power to actually customize this environment right um, so I worked on a system at New Jersey Tech years after Plato called eyes which yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, much of the same mm -hmm. thing, and we had this extensible language that was available to the users as well. Yeah. I think one of the things that we found, and it sounds like what Plato found, is when people could customize their environment with these tools, there was a real sense of ownership. Yeah. And that's what created the strong sense of user. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are, 25 years later, we have these disparate kind of tools, people have email and wikis and blogs, all kinds of things, but there's still a very uh, limited sense of Kind would, of community. Would you, you can't customize yeah. those. Would you just hold that because there's going to be a point where I want to talk exactly about that. <coughs> there are lessons learned in the notes experience about what happened from when notes came out until uh, till what it was like after it had been embraced by enterprise. Then Groove. There were. It's all related to exactly that that topic. It, it, it's you know the, both the pliability of the medium and the self empowerment. Have being an important part of, of, of the whole thing. So, <coughs> lessons learned in in the Plato era. You know, from my standpoint, um, I could just summarize it. You know, at, at as I had gone from being when I was submitting decks to to the three sixty seventy five. Um, uh, you know, I was thinking of it from a data processing perspective. You know, we were we were learning computer science from an algorithms and data structures viewpoint. We were being told that the jobs that we were going to have when we graduated were going to be in scientific computing or data processing. But it was a, a view of computing's role as as 
something other than what I saw, which was um, more or less power steering for human interaction. Um, uh, and, and that really left a mark on me. Um, the other thing that I learned, which is unrelated to this, maybe, but impacted me, which was the fact that everybody who I had grown to have respect for on this project was somebody who I would call a creative eccentric. They weren't following the normal path. They stepped back and said, whoa, there's technology. Yeah, technology's boring. What can I use it for? Uh, nobody's done this thing before. I'll take a risk. What the heck? What have I got to lose? You know, I'm, I, I'll, I might be embarrassed if it fails, but I'll try it. I'll try it. I'll try it. And the guy who, Don Bitzer, who did the overall architecture of the system and the hardware was a creative eccentric. This guy by the name of Paul Tenzar, who did the language interpreter, the, the, that environment, total creative eccentric. There were things in the language that have yet to be reproduced in languages to this day, and I don't get why. I really don't get why. There, that little arrow that I showed you, that, that I was pointing to, that was the prompt, the system prompt, every prompt came with natural language um, processing. It, and the, when you wrote a lesson, one of the first things you did was to define the vocabulary that, that would be recognized at, the, you know, at those prompts. And when you type things, there were all these, these libraries, essentially, that would do answer judging, that would help you help the lesson writer to understand the statistical probability that the answer that they typed was more or less the right answer for the, for the thing that, you know, that you were trying to do. These were all people just trying out different things. And so I kind of took away, hey, it's okay to think differently. You know, it's, it's, it, that's something that I'd, that I'd like to do later on. So most of my friends, at that point in time, University of Illinois um, was a good place to be from. Um, uh, you either went east or west. Um, you don't stick around there for a long time. And there was the, the Bay Area contingent, and there was the Boston Area contingent. And I interviewed at places on both sides. About half my friends went to each. Most of them went to DAC on the East Coast because there were, they were working on this thing that would eventually become the VAX, and it had this amazing instruction set and all this stuff, and it was a project everybody wanted to work on. So a lot of them went out there. I interviewed out there. I interviewed at DAC. actually got rejected. Um, uh, um, uh, but I was, but I got four acceptances at this other little company, Data General, and uh, um, Data General was a an upstart that was. It was started by some DEC uh, rebels who wanted to take down DEC, and DEC was. Um, DEC had this theory that mini computers could be could bring computing to you know s departments and you know bring low cost computing to enterprises as compared to IBM. Data General basically wanted to be the low cost. They believed that you know they could build stuff that was technically uh, just as good as the DEC stuff, maybe not as elegant, but did the job and it could come in at a much lower price. And it was a fun place. One of the things that was really attractive about DAC to me, I mean, sorry, Data General, uh, and this is an era, I don't know if any of you have heard of the soul of the new machine, but that, that was DAC, uh, sorry, Data General was trying to build a machine that would kind of compete with the VAX. I, didn't, I wasn't in that group. There was another little group off to the side that I just thought was really interesting. 
um, I interviewed with this guy, and there were uh, he had already hired one other guy, and I would be the third of a core group to write a new operating system. And they needed somebody who could do operating systems and firmware because there was a new hardware architecture they were they were doing. So I said, hey, this is cool. You know, I was a systems person there. I, I kind of like this. So this guy was John Sachs. That's the only picture I could find of him. Um, and this this system, and this is relevant. It's not necessarily relevant to collaboration, but it's relevant to the story. The system was just as bizarre um, as Plato might have been in its own little way. Um, uh, it was a commercial system, meaning it was intended to go into business, but rather than being a system with terminals, we had this concept that there was this thing that we invented, we thought we invented it, called the local area network. And uh, it was a token passing bus um, uh, at the time, and um, uh, you know that in, in essence, um, it was terminal uh, intelligent workstations, Micronova-based intelligent workstations, di diskless. That would it, the main components were these workstations and a file server, uh, you know, with tape drives and stuff like that. And you could use the workstation as a print server. And um, I wrote the terminal operating system. John wrote the file server operating system. And the third guy wrote a bunch of utilities around it. And then another whole group started writing languages and tools. But the thing that was really neat about the system was I had never had uh, uh, any exposure to this notion that the terminal might actually be a computer. And it was just fun. It was really a lot of fun building a, in essence, a distributed system. There was no local file system. It was a remote file system, but um, uh, it was it was enjoyable writing this the, the, this small code this this code, and it got me into uh, the notion of, uh, of of looking at what was happening with these microcomputers and microprocessors. Um, so. Um, uh, while I was, I was at Data General for for about three years, and there were some lessons that, to be learned there. Um, uh, number one was the fact that as I looked around at every project that was going on inside of Data General and my friends who were at DEC, I couldn't find a single project where they were using the computer as a communications device. People who had Plato background had re-implemented notes and term talk on the VAX. I had re-implemented notes and term talk and with another guy on that little system that I just showed you because we were trying to do it. But it was not on the radar screen. People were, that, the purpose of that system was uh, key, uh, word processing. It was supposed to go, be going up against the Wang, Wang OIS you know, system. Um, so number one, People still didn't get it, and that was a little frustrating. Uh, you know, the second thing is that that was my first time working for a company, and all I could say is I really didn't like interacting with other people in the political environment <laughs> that, that this company was. And there were lots of meetings and meetings and meetings, and the projects just seemed to be less. I was say you're going to do great in your new job. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. But the projects that we had worked at a distance with other people on. It's weird. They were almost more productive than the ones where we had to have a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. It was odd that inserting a constraint, um, uh, which was this medium, 
actually forced you to be better verbally about what your intent was and things like that. There was less grandstanding, you know, there all these weird things. So, and then the third one was more or less a technology thing. You know, the the main the mega mainframes that I had dealt with in college certainly were going to mini, but that was where it was really going. It was the micro was. It just felt to me that that that, that was that something. I didn't know what, but something was going to happen. Question. Yep. On your point about the communication, it strikes me that that may be involved today, actually, in all the outsourcing that's going on. Because mm -hmm. uh, lots, as lots of companies have found out, if you have poor requirements and you ask somebody overseas to build it, you get something back that doesn't do what you wanted. Yep. Yep. There are well, it's there are companies who are still learning the lessons that you know that we were trying to do there there and and we as an industry still have not learned a lot of the, uh, of, of these lessons certain industries have taken uh, uh, global sourcing for granted and they just adapt their environments certain uh, certain companies Microsoft is one of them um, uh, are laggards in using global development Microsoft has very successful projects in India and China but culturally it's a campus-based culture um, uh, and it's certain leaders within the company who understand, wow, I can use these you know, resources in Boston, resources here, resources there. All the talent isn't necessarily just here. But um, uh, you know, the, what happened on Plato was, was you didn't have the choice. You just, the, people were, the terminals were where they were, the people were, were there, where they were. And, and today in business, cost pressures are such that you know the people are just where they are and so processes form around that, those constraints and people use collaborative tools in order to just make it work at all so after a few years um, you know just before uh, just you know kind of at, as the the project I was working on was completed Sorry, I have yep. a question sure is there did back then were you supporting something other than uh, sort of completely synchronous communication and completely asynchronous communication? Is there some middle ground between, uh, you know, e email and chat that was commonly used? At Data General or DEC? Actually, probably in Illinois is what I really mean. Okay. At Illinois, everything that I used for text-based communication, the 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 chat stuff was real time, to be and the other stuff was asynchronous. And the games were the richest form of collaboration, and that was you know synchronous. Um, but there was no because there was no it wasn't a PC model. There was no such thing as disconnected operation. If you know what I mean, it was only a fully connected. The terminals had to be plugged in. Right, even but, if it was but what I mean is there's you know the guys out to lunch or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, that <laughs> um, there were facilities in the notes thing to indicate that you're out on vacation. Okay, um, uh, but that's probably about the extent of it. Yeah. So about that time, because I had this, I thought that micros might be a happening thing. Um, there was one uh, little company in, in Cambridge called Software Arts that was hiring. Uh, I think I was number 29, um, employee number 29. But it was a very family-ish kind of company run by t these two guys, Dan Brooklyn and Bob Frankston. 
Dan Bricklin um, invented the spreadsheet, um, and and Software Arts was the developer in a developer-publisher relationship with another company called Personal Software that actually brought it to market. They did all the marketing and sales, and and this was the the kind of the engineering company, and. Um, it was a blast. It was that the they at the time they had um, done VisiCalc for the Apple II, and it basically made the Apple II. If you ask, you know, the what Steve or Steve, you know, it just it was the it was why people bought the Apple II. That's it right there. Um, and what Waz said is that because he had put slots in the Apple II, you put enough memory in it to mm -hmm. run. Visicalc and the Trash 80 didn't have his memory. So well, he might, have, he might be trashing it, but the Trash 80... <laughs> there it is. The tra that was my, my first job was to do the port of the, uh, of the thing to the Trash 80. He's right that the Apple II was by far more successful than the Trash 80, but you can't trash the Trash 80. <laughs> Um, Excuse me. It was really a cheaply built. It's probably the, one of the most cheaply built machines I've ever seen. This was, you know, whereas the Apple II was this beautiful white metal, you know, uh, whatever, <coughs> just high quality. This they called it the Trash 80 because it was silver plastic. You know, it was just it had that junk feel, but <laughs> but it worked, and we had it was a. I won't go there, you know, in terms of telling stories and this thing, but it was a very challenging environment because um, this was a hobbyist computer market and there were so many different computers and uh, there they go. <laughs> um, <laughs> should we leave? <laughs> um, the, the the job that a, that a handful of us had was to port VisiCalc from machine to machine to machine to machine to machine. Each one had its own, uh, you know, I/O architecture for the screen. Um, you know, different uh, uh, subroutine libraries for the the floppy. There was no real OS to speak of. You know, there was just a little a little monitor piece of code. Um, Are you writing that in assembler or? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. The, the 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 state of compilers at the time, even though there were compilers there, they were so easily in order of magnitude. You couldn't get code generated that was even remotely close, size-wise or perf-wise, to what what you needed. Not not at all. Um, uh, and you're not doing development on the machine. We're doing cross development. We had this massive Prime Super Mini, where we had all our all our compilers and tools and things like that, and you know you download it uh, through binary, you know, encoded over a terminal uh, emulator in here, which would write it to a floppy. Then you'd reboot and then test it, and then go back to editing on in Emacs on you know this on Prime. So question from Berkeley. Yep. So the way Wise tells this is he was building this cool hobbyist computer because he enjoyed it basically, and after a while he decided he could sell small numbers of them, but it was still kind of a small business. And then he notices that VisiCalc has had this great idea that you can actually do business with this, and suddenly Apple becomes a real computer. Yeah. Um, within VisiCalc, did you guys have a period of kicking yourselves that you had in fact had the great idea? 
and Apple got most of the profits? I mean, how did that shake out and how did it happen? Well, so first of all, it was a very, to call, just to set the perspective, to call this an industry at the time is a real, I mean, there were, there were probably, you know, it was a fair kind of a thing, not even a you know, not even a conference. You know, you would have everybody knew each other, and everyone was stumbling into it as a business. Dan Bricklin uh, figured out that he wanted to do the spreadsheet thing while he was in business school, so he had a he had a business mind and a business conceptualization. Uh, Frankson was at MIT. He was a hacker. He was just a really he he just loved to code. Still is and still is. Um, uh, by the time I got there, they were already past the stage. They were already into the stage of it being a business, meaning I never was, I wasn't there at a time when it was um, uh, pure hobbyist or stumbling around. They were already, the money was flowing in uh, faster than they could deal with it. Um, uh, it, was the, it was easily the, let me see if I get this right. I believe that that over the life of the of Visical, they they brought in about 200 million, which is staggering. I mean, just truly staggering. We were get. I think it was like. I think I think at the time I was in there, they were getting 10 million dollars a year revenue, and it, just the just our unit, uh, you know, software arts, and and the demand by PC manufacturers, you know, PC microcomputer manufacturers was so great that we were just scrambling, scrambling, scrambling to, to build the stuff and ship it and ship it and ship it. So so I wish I were there, but I was you know I wasn't there at that at that point in time. Um, this was the the team <laughs> and that's that's me right there. Um, uh, um, th this this thing that says TK that was the next project that we worked on. Um, uh, uh, we decided at one point that it wasn't going to scale to uh, to port VisiCalc from machine to machine to machine. So my job and the, and a couple other guys on this picture, our job was to build a a set of compi a compiler and an IL an interpreter. Uh, to so that essentially we could just port the interpreter and then build multiple products on top of it, not just VisiCalc. Um, so I was in charge of the interpreter and, and all that stuff. Other people started rewriting VisiCalc, and this TK thing was, this was our next product that we were working on. At the time that I was there, I had a I had a, a, my office in the basement of this of this building, and one day. Um, Bob Frankston, uh, well, one day I'm sitting there and in comes, this is a very bummy crowd, you know, it's just a, it's Cambridge, it's just a, you know, it's a university environment. And um, in one day walk these two guys who are wearing suits with white shirts and ties and they just looked so weird. And they, 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 they were, you know, Frankston was with them, they were poking around, they went into a closet uh, they were in this closet for a while. They came out, and then a few hours later, some construction guys came in and they put chicken wire up on the ceiling of the uh, closet, 
It's IBM or the IRS. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. And, and then they left, and then some other guys came in. This is all in one day with um, a bunch of boxes. And then Bob went in there for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then, you know, it was probably, I don't know, 11 p.m., and he comes out, and I'm like, what are you doing in there? He goes, you know, come on in here, come on in here. And on this table, this you know, like folding table, was a, um, a piece of plywood with a circuit board attached to it, a clear plastic keyboard, and a stack of ROM listings, and a monitor. And he's like, this is the IBM PC. This is what's going to you know, be you know, that. that. And, and, and so we started playing with it. And it wasn't the best technology that could have been done at the time. They chose a clunky processor as compared to what, what, el you know, what else was, being, was available at the time. But you could just tell that, the, that they were serious about it. And, you know, as we talked about it, we just felt this was going to be an inflection point. This was where, you know, PCs were going to finally take over from VT100s everywhere, you know, terminals on people's desktops. Yep. What year is it? Uh, this was 81, late 81, I believe, something like that, yeah. And so a number of us just scrambled. Um, uh, we flew out to, Bob and I flew out to meet uh, with... Gary Kildall over at Digital Research and in, in, uh, uh, over in Car what is it Pacific Grove near Carmel. Kildall was in the love of ours, actually. Really? Yeah. Went up to meet these guys, uh, Gates and Balmer, um, uh, who had just acquired this OS that they, you know, eventually called MS DOS. Um, Tim was on the love of ours too. Yep. And and so we just, you know, we started talking. We said, how are we going to make this thing a success? And what people seem to forget is that the day that the IBM PC was shipped, there were two OSs that were available, CPM86, and which was digital research, and MS-DOS. And we as, as software arts kind of had to place a bet. Do we do it for that? We didn't have enough resources to port it to both. Um, so... That was it, and, and I and a couple other people ported the Z80 code. There was this one guy who just had a brilliant idea, and he did a cross-compiler that took Z80 uh, macro assembler and generated, did a code gen of 8080, and it needed hand fix-up, but it worked, you know, well enough, um, and and we shipped it. But at the time, it was it was it was intense for me because. I, you have to understand that all this time I'm still thinking the things that I was that I had in the previous slide, like like where is the human interaction? Where is using computer as a communication device? And finally, I'm thinking if if uh, if we took the IBM PC and the LAN kind of thing that I had done over at um, at uh, Data General, except Ethernet was now starting to um, you know take off a little bit. Um, at least in the mini realm, um, you know, then that would be the, a great platform for finally doing this notes thing again. So I started writing up specs for this product that would eventually become Lotus Notes. This was '82, so the primary purpose will be to provide, you know, microcomputers can be used to construct a truly paperless office and a means by which geographically distinct individuals can communicate with one another. You know. <coughs> 
fast and reliable communications, mail, conferencing, forms, scheduling, te text database, you know, text retrieval, import, export, blah, 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 blah. Public key encryption. I, got, I was really turned on by some, th some stuff that I had read uh, in uh, commu communications, of the, or IEEE computer. Um, anyway, it was, it was just, I was so excited by this thing. And so I wrote up this spec. Buddy of mine, you know, two friends of mine from Plato uh, uh, got together, you know, and we said, yeah, let's start a company, let's do this. I went out to try to get venture capital for it and struck out. I just went from place to place to place, Greylock, TA Associates, this, that, and the other. You know, I was, I, I don't know, 26 or something like that, but I just, I had no business experience. They didn't know what the heck I was talking about. And so I struck out, and I was frustrated, but I was having fun over at Software Arts. They didn't, Bob and Dan didn't care that I did, I wrote the stuff off to the side, they knew. And um, so one day I get a call again, as I did every six months or so, from my buddy John Sachs from, from Data General, and uh, the guy who had hired me there. And he, had, he said, hey Ray, I met this guy, um, and we're gonna start a company. And we're going to build spreadsheets. We're going to build the best spreadsheet that you know for, that could possibly be for uh, for the IBM PC. We're going to write it in hand-tuned assembler. We're going to do this and this. He talked about all these ideas that was going to make it an order of magnitude faster than than VisiCalc. And I said, "You're nuts." Number one, I'm bored of working on spreadsheets. I don't want to work on spreadsheets. I want to work on this notes thing. And number two, um, you're never going to get in an order of magnitude faster. But they did. They, you know, he had met this guy, Mitch Kapor, and um, uh, so they started this company, Lotus. And they, uh, by the second time John called, he had he had written the product and they had shipped it. It was, uh, um, I think, seven months or something like that from when they started until they they shipped it. it Might have been a little longer than that. Um, uh, but uh, it was just taking off. They had a they, they their business plan had a first year revenues of three million dollars, and, and they did fifty three. Uh, and and in, and and that's real money, you know, and uh, particularly for a small company. And so they so John was yeah. And, and sorry, and and was the secret sauce the spreadsheet, or was it the two and the three? The secret sauce was the combination of two things. It was. Um, the one, two, three, by the way, is spreadsheet, graphics, and database. Right. And, and database meaning you can store records in rows in the spreadsheet. <laughs> and um, uh, graphics meant you can, you can select and do a chart in the thing without saving it and then loading a new program to do the charts, which is what you had to do with VisiCalc. Um, that was key thing number one was that combination. Key thing number two was the, the perf. The order of magnitude speed improvement was shocking, and if you, and if I load this, I, I could demo this for you. If you load one, two, three on an IBM PC, uh, I've got two demos that I just think are just amazing. Loading one, two, three on an IBM PC today and put it next to any contemporary spreadsheet on a current PC, and one, two, three is faster. And do the same thing with Mac Paint on the first Mac. It's it's stunning yeah. how fast it is. There's no hard disk, you know. So it's just it just everything is in memory. It just goes. So anyway, it um, 
That was great. So John was burnt out. He had just done this project. He was the only one programming the core code. There were like eight programmers. The rest of them were doing print drivers and stuff. And he goes, I'm really burnt. We need a version two. We've got all these competitors nipping at our heels. Just come in and talk to Mitch. Now I want to work on notes. Come in and talk to Mitch. So I, I went in, talked to Mitch. We did a handshake deal. And uh, you know, I would come and work for and do one version of one two three for for him, for them. And uh, uh, the day that it shipped, he would help me s figure out how to do what I really wanted to do. So I started there, and nine months, almost to the day la later, we shipped Symphony, quarter of a million lines of assembler. <laughs> um, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was great. I, I mean, it, we renamed it by the by the time it shipped because we ended up having to rev one two three because we broke macro compatibility and all this. Anyway, but I shipped it. Mitch kept his word, literally kept his word to the day, uh, you know, that it shipped. He came down and said, "Okay, dust off your business plan, you know, and and we'll figure out how to get you funded." So I, you know. Revved it again, uh, did some amazingly compelling screen mock-ups, um, uh, you know, in, in Emacs. It was just, uh, you know, it, it you know it had split windows, you know, panes. You would select a line and it would change down here. It was just incredible. Um, does this have a date? No, it doesn't. Oh well. Um, uh, then. Um, a guy speaking downtown tonight, by the way. Hmm? Mitch is speaking downtown tonight. <laughs> That's great. At Voyager Capital event. That's funny. I'm having breakfast with him in the morning. Um, then then uh, we started working on, dur during that time, we got some Macs because they were starting to work on 123 for the Macs. So I grabbed one and decided to try to do some graphical versions. Lee Oswald, Alcatraz, California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It was it was fun. I mean, I have a whole palette of these 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 snapshots. They're 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 great. These concept diagrams. But eventually, I got it to the point where they, where we came to a deal, and uh, uh, Lotus funded me, uh, you know, to 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 do this project. You know, 1.2 million bucks, uh, you know, initial funding. And so I called up my buddies from Plato, uh, Tim Halverson and Len Kaywell. Um, and said, I got the check, let's do it. And they're like, you really got the check? You know? and, and so they both quit DEC. They were still at DEC. And uh, uh, so we started this company, Iris. Now, Iris um, was a separate company uh, from Lotus. We had a publisher, uh, uh, kind of like the software arts, personal software thing. We were the engineering firm. They were the publisher. And we started working on it. And before long, I think this was in yeah '85, um, we had code operating. And I don't know if any of you have seen Notes, but it actually looks a lot like this, except a little less bright colors. Um, this was a pre-Windows One version of Windows. Um, something, sorry, just random tidbits. But what when the first couple months that after we had started the project, we decided that this graphical user interface thing might actually catch on. So, so well, it, it hadn't yet on the PC. So um, uh, we went to digital research that had a thing called GEM, uh, Graphical Environment Manager, 
Visicorp, who had Vision, which was another one, and Microsoft that had this little thing that they had just hacked together called Windows. And it was just a few people, and it was the least mature of any of them. But I knew Bill by that point in time, and I had dinner with them, and they basically said, we'll do anything to get you as an ISV. I don't know what you're working on, but we're going to succeed. We're going to succeed. And, they were very, and he was very passionate about it. And Sorry, what was the installed base of Macs in 19, this is middle 1986? Uh, no, this is when we started, when we had to make that decision, it was 84, okay, December so 84. Was zero, was the answer. zero, yeah. So, um, uh, but we had to make a decision, and so the deal basically, I said, Bill, if we can have the source code to Windows, if we can work on Windows with you to get it debugged while you're building it, we'll do the app for it. So we had this funky source relationship for many years where we just debugged along with the, the systems group, and there were two other apps that were basically doing the same thing at the time, Excel and Micrographics, I think, was the name of the company that was doing a graphics package. They didn't have the source, but they were uh, working in that era. But anyway, so this was a pre this was what Windows One eventually did look like. It's a it didn't have overlapping windows. It had tiled windows, but we believed in overlapping windows, so we wrote a overlapping window manager within the tile, <laughs> um, uh, as you can see. And you know, tried to emulate a lot of the Mac-like, you know, look and feel because we liked it and and stuff like that. But anyway, so it we we started working on it. We several years went by, and Lotus started to by '86 when you can actually see this. Uh, we were communicating with people who were at Lotus uh, through their our Vax mail gateway. They decided to try to figure out how to market this thing. And so they started going to their corporate customers, talking about collaboration, talking about these concepts that we, um, you know, were espousing about, uh, you know, using technology to communicate. People were not on email, you know, at the time. They didn't have LANs. They they were they had there were limited numbers of terminals in places. You know, some people had PCs for spreadsheets, but definitely, you know, if there were networks. It, it was probably because of file sharing, you know, some early novel, you know, file sharing or sharing the laser writer, the expensive printer that somebody had bought. Um, and the language that we were using to talk about the value proposition of the product just didn't resonate at all. It, it was just, it, it was, <laughs> it, it was just DOA. And so time just went on and they just kept trying to do it and it and and I won't go into it but the nature of the contract our contract with Lotus incented them to want to keep it was better for them to keep it alive than to kill it uh, I'll say it that way fi financially and strategically so they just kept funding it uh, even after we ran through that initial funding so but after about four years this Sorry, this was Lotus money and not Mitch money right? Lotus money yeah yeah Lotus money and then, and so finally, this one guy decided he knew how to sell it, and a lot of kind of the stars aligned, because this essentially what we had entered was an era of re-engineering the corporation, and this was a big, you know, business in, uh, trends. You can always measure the trends based on the business books that sell at the time, but this book, which everyone was, you know, kind of shopping around within their corporations was 
a manifesto that basically said if you can use information, it said many things, but you can use information technologies to revisit the, the processes within your businesses to eliminate boundary, boundaries, flatten the organization, you know, get people talking with one another within the organization, um, and, and you'll be more profitable. You'll have a better, you know, a, a better organization. So we hooked on to that from a, from a pitch perspective and started to talk up how we were good to, as an enabling technology for this, you know, this kind of revolution. And so it was enough to get the product out to market. We had a key customer, Price Waterhouse, uh, uh, who bought uh, 10,000 copies the day one, made a huge, uh, uh, a lot of noise about it. They didn't install that many right away, but it was a commitment. You know, we shipped uh, V1 of notes. Uh, uh, you know, it, it went to more customers, more customers. It was an odd um, technology product for people. Yep. Go back a slide. So, so that message is interesting. It says, will you be able to send mail directly to MCI from notes? So what was actually the gateway situation at this point? Yeah, the no notes, mail in general was not embraced by enterprises. Um, it was a university thing and military, you know, government military thing. And um, MCI was, MCI, CompuServe, there were a few online service providers, the source, uh, uh, the well, Echo in New York City, that were, that used various technologies. There was friends and family, they didn't interoperate. They did not interoperate, no way. Um, eventually, they interoperated through UUNet, um, right. uh, but in, in the beginning, they did not uh, do it. MCI um, uh, wanted to get their, their mail into corporations, and so we did a deal with them because they saw us as potentially making them relevant in within enterprises. So we <laughs> built a notes to MCI mail gateway that ran on the notes server. And just like we had written a VAX gateway for our internal VAX uh, email but, but the original design was that there was a notes mail server for the people in that corporation. The, the original design was very much like, um, it was modeled after uh, Usenet. It was modeled at, as a departmental server, a small server that could serve a handful of people on a local area network segment. And then that server, um, uh, you know, as client server within there. There was a notes client and it communicated with the notes server where the databases were and there, there was um, that notes server would communicate via uh, an async protocol called x.pc to other notes servers in a masterless mesh kind of fashion, kind of like UCP. Yep. And notes databases are the fundamental unit of collaboration there it's, mail is just an application. It's a forms-based application environment, and mail is just an application, you know, of of these, you know, of this form type stuff. So, you know, Notes v1, we shipped it. Notes v2, we added a lot more mobility support, client-side replication. Why were the corporations so unwilling to, to do mail? Universities and sounds like the military have been doing it for a long time, and they just. Well, let's start, let's start with the basics. If you have a company, let's say Merrill Lynch, let's say you're in New York, um, I don't know, pick a number of employees, or General Motors at the time, 60,000 employees. Probably hundreds of them had PCs. The rest of them, you know, the, you, people didn't have terminals on their desks. They, you know, we get so used to the fact, you know, imagine going to work 
and actually having paper and a phone. You know, it's hard to imagine, but that was the world. You know, and so so people were getting more and more PCs, but they were using them for spreadsheet purposes, for writing documents, or you know, uh, and things like that. But you know, land-based email hadn't even taken off yet. You know, at that point in time, you know, within the corporation, so they just didn't see the value. Well, I mean, I will. I remember Richard. I think Richard Eckel is over here. He was at Lotus in, in those days, and I remember seeing a study, and I can tell you who did that study. But that uh, that the email market, the annual email market by it doesn't matter what year was going to be five million dollars. You know, it was just a trivial market. We shouldn't even bother with email. We should focus on the business solution aspects of notes. You know, the, the, it, w it wasn't conventional wisdom that, e that everyone was going to be on email in corporations. I don't know, do you remember what year finally, I guess it was when we acquired CC mail that mail was really yeah. taking off. So that was what, eight, eight, uh, CC mail would have been 91? Yeah, 91, right. And even then, it was land-based email. It was, you know, put 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 email in for your department. Right. Then connect them. Eventually, it would grow up into the company doing it, and then it got very frustrating. But even intercompany, forget about it. Uh, the internet was not allowed for commercial use at that point in time. So, um, you know, you had to beg, borrow, and steal to figure out how to just get a news feed, uh, um, get hooked into a news feed if that was interesting to your So UUCP Unix had stored forward email based on fixed routing tables and mm -hmm. telephone dial-up numbers. Okay? Right. I remember like at one point I was writing a book in the early 80s with some guys at Toronto. And so we set up to call Toronto and pretty soon we were carrying from UW all the traffic between the US and Canada was going over our stupid phone line because somebody discovered that we were calling Toronto twice a day who changed chapters right, of a book. Right. And you know, into the nineties, all of the email services were basically big time sharing machines in Virginia. And you would have an eight hundred number and you dial a time sharing machine in Virginia. You could exchange mail with only other people with accounts on that time sharing right. system. And it was sometime in the very late eighties that Vince Surf got DARPA to agree to let ARPANET interchange mail with MCI right. at the right. time. That was the right. first time there was any sort of right. gateway between mail services. Yeah. It, was all, they were all it wasn't that. until early 90s that, that finally businesses actually saw the prospect of, of value in having people communicate online. And even then, it initially came in with specific, uh, like the engineers will talk, you know, not or you know, not necessarily the why would salespeople need it, you know, and it, it it came in, you know, section by section within companies, and it and it was a fairly intense capital cost too, because just the concept of buying everybody a PC was serious money. I mean, these are somewhere between probably three grand at the low end, probably more like ten grand. Um, uh, you know, realistically per PC. Then there's network cabling. In New York, the reason I had brought up Merrill is one of our biggest obstacles in getting notes in into uh, companies in New York, <coughs> New York and Chicago, but mainly New York was unions. Um, uh, they wouldn't, you had, it was immensely difficult to get a wire pulled from one office to the next because the unions had 
they just controlled that, and you, you just couldn't do it at all. So it was just a different world. But once people started connecting with with email, they began to you know, and they'd read the books, you know, the business books that that talked about how they you know how the technology could augment business process. Um, um, you know, things started to started to happen. Um, no, by notes v3, um, v3, as in any major app, is was the killer version. You know, the the early adopt, the first one was the bleeding edge adopters. The second one, you had some, you know, you had more tire kickers uh, um, and and you know more visionaries. But then by the v3, it v3 was the first time the product really showed through all of the original concepts that 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 were. That were intended, you know, at the beginning, and it and it had decent performance and so on. So that kind of started to take off. The other thing related to um, notes rolling out was the fact that um, uh, by V3 um, we started to have um, business partners, and um, uh, to the point earlier, um, notes had a very rudimentary script. Function-based and you know, kind of scripting in a relatively easy scripting environment, and it was built using templates. And so the mail app and the discussion app and things like that were just templates. Well, VARs were beginning to pop up, value-added resellers who would have domain expertise in a certain area, like you know, a legal VAR or a, um, uh, a sales management VAR. Who understood what salespeople might use a technology like this for? So they brought their domain expertise in. They started creating applications and acting as reselling middlemen <coughs> for the product. Lotus still didn't have a clue how to sell it. We could barely describe what the heck the product was used for. But these VARs understood how to communicate the value to a customer in the terms that were rela relative to that. Specific business process, and that is a huge lesson learned that you'll see l later on, which is kind of abstractly the value of collaboration software and technology rises in some proportion to the domain specificity um, uh, and the pliability uh, um, of the tool to allow domain experts to customize it to their specific needs. Um, it's not, I mean, some of it, and I'll get into this later, is a feeling of ownership, but some of it is very rapidly, you know, I'm using an app, but the way that I use it needs this other client field in it. And if I have to wait and ask somebody else to do it down the road, um, it's not as effective as if I can just dive in, add the field myself, and it's done. It, the, it, the, the feeling of gratification of actually making the thing solve your problem Brought that personal empowerment, that computer lib, you know, to the to the um, you know to the individual who's who's actually got the problem that they need, they they need solving. Yep. So a couple of dates. Uh, ARPANET became NSFNet in 1988. So at that point, there were okay. regional networks and corporations could hook up. Mm -hmm. The MCI mail interconnection was in 1989. Okay. So until then, closed networks. Right. And I know that. As of at least a year after Microsoft Research was founded, so that is 1992, mm -hmm. Microsoft still wasn't on the internet, mm -hmm. and uh, and we were we provided a UUCP right. 
gateway for them. And they were a uniquely advanced corporation. So Microsoft didn't get the Internet as recently as 1992. Even for, you know, there was like no connection. Well, our iris.com, I think, was 86. And that was UUNet. But we released in 89. And, again, nobody really wanted to. We didn't actually have a Usenet gateway, an official Usenet gateway that we sold as a product probably until B3 of Notes. So, anyway, it was really B3 of Notes where it really started to be used productively by business. People started telling stories. You know, by V4 of Notes was really the killer version. Even though V3 fulfilled what it was intended to do from a collaboration perspective, V4 of Notes happened concurrent with Microsoft releasing Exchange. And suddenly when Microsoft released Exchange and we had Mail and Notes, suddenly a bunch of companies decided, okay, I guess now is the time to buy email. And it caused a huge wave in the global 2000 worldwide to buy email. And Notes went in that time frame from, I think, 2 million seats, 2.2 million or something like that, to about 60 million, 50 million or something like that. So were there alternative corporate email systems prior to that? The choices that you had at the time were departmental, okay, buy a super mini, buy a Vax and run all-in-one or Data General, get CEO, get profs from IBM, or put in a LAN and get CC Mail. There were CC Mail competitors, but CC Mail really owned the market. We bought CC Mail with the illusion that we would convert those customers over to Notes, and some we did and some we didn't, as Lotus. But in any case, Mail drove the adoption of Notes, and then people started to use it for its collaborative features after they had bought the product. So it kind of inverted the sales model of the product. But this is, again, back to a question somebody asked a minute ago. I mean, there was a well-established sort of Unix-based national email system that a corporation could have used internally if they wanted to. Yes. Dating back to 1980-something or something like that. Right, but with what friendly user interface? There were tons of user interfaces, but it wasn't really packaged for corporate PC use. I mean, that's why CC Mail took off. They nailed the user interface in a way. It was kind of the Lotus 1-2-3 of email. It was so fast and so succinct in terms of how it delivered that experience that it was just what people wanted. Notes was kind of trashed at the time as being too slow. Why would you get something that overboard with databases and all that stuff when all you need is email? Eventually, I mean, we within the industry knew that eventually client-server architectures and things like that would 
be the right architecture. CCML was based on an architecture where it was shared files. Any user could write a program that trashed the mail database that everyone was sharing, and that's how you know how it was. But I think you sort of went by it real quickly. But I think the important point there was you said on PCs. You know, at that time, late '80s and early '90s, technical users did communicate via Unix mail, and that's mm -hmm. what we were perfectly right. happy with. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking from the perspective of high volume but, but corporate PC, business. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, so they were using Sun workstations and Apollo. You know, they they were using work workstations or 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 terminals on systems, not PCs. Yeah. So CCML was a combination of a reasonable UI and a server side that was. Snappy, is that right? Efficient, it's both of those things. Yeah, users didn't know there is a server. They right. just ran it on their PC, which happened to be connected but, to a LAN. But and the UI was, was good and the response time, responsiveness. That's right, too. yeah. It's, there, there are lessons to be learned over and over and over in the industry that the thing that a, a, an, a key aspect of a killer app is high performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's necessary, but not sufficient. But, but. In any case, um, so by the time V3, V4 of notes happened, we had a lot of data in terms of what worked and what didn't work from a collaboration standpoint within major corporations. And I had lots of time over that period of time to understand academically more what the theory of business process was uh, um, uh, was underlying some of the successes and some of the failures. So I'm going to go a little bit abstract for just one moment. Um, one of the fundamental blockers in the sales of the product was can you quantify the benefits of this stuff in a way that's meaningful to me? And we tried all sorts of ways. And this didn't work either, by the way. Um, uh, it, it was very obscure. But if you take this and abstract it, a salesperson could make an appropriate pitch. And what this really says is, if you've got a work process that involves a number of, of cooperating entities, uh, you can go back to Ron Coase uh, you know, in the 30s who wrote about you know, transaction cost economics. And it's all, what is the right organizational form for getting cooperating entities to deliver a given product? And and so we basically said, okay, this is the return on your investment in a collaborative technology is approximated by some overhead that you need to set up the connection first between the departments or between people. What are, how are you going to actually decide to communicate with one another? That's a one-time kind of overhead. Then for any given work process, how many times does it go back and forth and back and forth to make the decisions necessary to deliver that piece of code, that iPod, that PC, that whatever product you're working on? How, you know, how many cooperating parties are there? How, what is the cost of each iteration in terms of, of real time? the distortion, the mistakes that happen for every time you communicate back and forth and you get the, you know, there, there's a language issue, there's a terminology issue, there's a, you know, hidden agendas. There are all sorts of reasons why there's cost in real process. So we tried to reduce it 
maybe not with this model, but in abstractly, we tried to communicate what the value of collaboration software was in terms where people could say, if you invest money, you will get benefit. Okay, but it was still abstract. It was still it just still felt very qualitative um, to people, and that was a very frustrating thing. Um, they also kept asking, okay, you've got all this experience. What of all those places that where where notes is deployed? What are the characteristics, the key characteristics of things where it's really worked really really well, and where it's just failed, where people made a big investment and they got nothing out of it. And there were lots of those. There were lots of, and there to this day, there were lots of people who, who essentially um, brought the technology in, deployed it, and it made no difference. And the reason, one of the biggest core reasons, is that people gravitate to technology as a panacea, as a silver bullet solution, sometimes to things where there are deeper problems. Um, and, and uh, you know, let's say that a pro you've got, a, I'll just make something up. Let's say that you're an airline company and you've got a plane that you committed to people and, and uh, uh, you know, you've got, uh, uh, you're late. You might have wiring problems or something like that. And, and, and so, and, and there are multiple people who have to coordinate between France and Germany and whatever to get something, uh, uh, this problem solved. So what they do is they go buy some technology and install it and say, well, now we have collaboration software, so it should all be just fine. But the French still hate the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> right. They either there's a cultural issue that's fundamentally like like a number of professional services firms installed it early on, and they had a culture that rewards people for withholding information. I'm the expert at something. Software is not going to fix that 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 problem. Um, some people would install the software when they should be also changing a business process. And some people put the software in, implemented a business process at the same time, the business process failed, and then blamed the software. And that happened a lot, a lot. Um, so, so, you know, you brought a bunch of people together, you said, okay, we're gonna, we have a new way of engineering this thing, and here's some new technology that you're gonna use to coordinate with it, and it doesn't work, and, you know, net, net, nobody can really point to why it didn't work, it might have been lack of training. It might have been, you know, misset expectations, whatever. But um, yeah. so, so related to this, th there's a uh, paper now ten years ago by Solow, a Nobel Prize-winning economist, mm -hmm. in which roughly what he said was information technology shows up everywhere except in the productivity statistics. So the question is, why had corporations spent the entire decade of the '90s? spending on technology and you couldn't see that it had contributed right. a thing. Yeah. And the reasons you describe are really the reasons. It's that it's not just injecting the technology, it's adapting the business processes to exploit <laughs> the technology or it's fixing the fundamental things that were broken. That's right. Okay? That's so in some sense, it takes a decade for those investments to pay off. Right. And additionally, they were measuring some of the wrong things. That's but right. It's really interesting. By the late 90s, Alan Greenspan had figured out that there really were productivity gains. Mm -hmm. Partly there was a 10-year latency and partly you had to measure them appropriately. Right, right. It also took 
some amazing notable successes to really wake up the public consciousness. When Walmart developed cross-docking and used technology and business process innovation at the same time, people went, wow, they couldn't have done that without the technology, but the technology was kind of useless without the business process, and it started clicking. So people, I think, more started using that pattern. One of the things, though, that we noticed that was a pretty repeatable pattern for success of notes was that, I mean, it's kind of stated right here as it really is, anything where you've got people who already know how to work with one another. You know, they've got a process that we're working on. I'll take software development. I already know how to do software development. I know the things that I need to do. I know who I need to call to get a problem answered. I know generally who knows what. I know the information that we need to share together. I know that we kind of in our own minds already know the protocol for who does what and then who does that. If you take something that's already occurring and then you throw this in, it's an amplifier. You know, kind of going back to Doug Engelbart in terms of augmentation. It's a great augmentation tool. Very high success rate in terms of augmenting lightweight things that were grassroots. So in looking at this thing, think big think stuff is hard. The lightweight stuff, it's really kind of working more and more. And our thinking about this kind of got a little bit more mature. We started looking at different business processes that were happening on one side or the other and started having a vocabulary of talking about things that were business processes versus business practices. And Esther Dyson was probably the, said this the best to me. She said, in the UK, Ray, there's this thing called work to rule. They don't strike. They work to rule. And what that means is they continue to do this, but they stop doing this. Anything that's not a codified process that the company tells you that you have to do, you just stop doing. You don't pick up the phone. You don't do this. You don't do that. You don't take advantage of knowledge of, of who's the expert at what. You just do what they tell you to do. And the whole place grinds to a halt. And, and, and the, so these things, the, the, you know, these kinds of processes um, really require a different approach to the problem and potentially the architecture of the collaboration software than the very dynamic <laughs> people-oriented things that need to, to uh, 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 yeah, the uh, practices involve people versus systems, they're more spontaneous, you know, they're cellular, meaning people get together in little groups, do something, and it's fractal, you know, maybe there's another group, this and that, um, and so on. And I started noticing something going on in a couple of customers um, that we had, two notable examples at the time. You know, you, at this point, you go, oh, well, duh. But, <laughs> but um, uh, Chrysler said, wow, we're going to take this notes technology, and we have all these suppliers. We're using it very effectively internally. We're going to try to get notes out into the suppliers and actually start 
collaborating with them. AIG said all of our uh, insurance company, all of our outside counsel working on all these millions of lawsuits, we're going to require them to get notes and get it installed and get it up and running. And so, you know, I started to think, wow, are, is this collaboration thing going to start happening outside the company in this era, in the era coming forward, like it did in the re-engineering the corporation era inside the company? Are we going to flatten the organizations, not just the organization? So. So these are the kinds of questions, you know, that I was asking myself, and you know, even in the government, you know, of course now, you know, with 9/11 and everything, everybody knows the the it's communication totally problem. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, so um, I was kind of pondering this um, in a in a big way. Oh, I guess I should say one more thing. Back again, we something happened to notes over the period of time that, um, and this is very subtle from when we brought it to market until uh, this era, which was about 96, which um, when we brought notes out, it had this UUCP-like model. It was very departmental. The people who used the applications got to modify it. It was very empowering, extremely empowering. As the product became more and more and more successful, and especially as it became email infrastructure, corporate IT decided that it wanted to centrally manage those servers. And it didn't want all these different applications you know, being done by these different departments with different schemas to their, to their data. So they'll just lock it down. And they communicated to Lotus, to us at Lotus, well, we need these systems management features. We need these professional programming features because we want to integrate it with our back-end enterprise systems. And so what had started as a very dynamic grassroots system turned into centralized enterprise IT controlled professional development. And the individual end users um, use of these things devolved to creating instances of applications with templates that had been pre-created by IT and so on. So Notes was finding its way from this, where we had success in early Notes, this way. Got moved into the glass it house got, then. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. That's so, so, um, so, so sorry. So you used to sell to groups. We would sell, sell to the line of business at the edge. The person who knew what business problem they had to solve, we would sell to them, and they would deploy a small set of it or somebody you know, between this department and this other department that needed to work together. When email took off, it was the best, the best of times and the worst of times. It was the best of times because sales skyrocketed. We were being sold as IT infrastructure, but it was the worst of times because it got locked down. And it changed the basic nature of what right. the be of, of what it was. I mean, the sales model is interesting because that's been like Salesforce.com's big success. Ignoring the fact that they're an ASP, it's that five right. folks can sign up for Salesforce. And suddenly, exactly right. they're beating the pants off the guys in the next set that's of right. cubicles. And and you might be interested to know that Mark Benioff took me aside at one World Economic Forum, and he and he said, Ray, when I used to work at Oracle, Larry Ellison and I and so and so and so and so were very concerned about notes. We thought the unstructured database that you had built was totally unprofessional, didn't have didn't look anything like relational databases, 
um, but really looked scary because customers, it was people who were solving problems with it. And we thought, wow, look at all this grassroots use. Look at all these thousands of apps that people are doing. And look at the fact that once they've built the apps, they can't rip it out. You can't take it out of their hands. And this is true today. You can't get notes out of organizations. Um, even after they've shifted mail to Exchange, it's very difficult to, to pull it out. So um, uh, Benioff basically said, um, I'm going to create Salesforce.com as a service-based notes. And if you look at the, the early notes apps were Salesforce automation, uh, what today we would call CRM applications. Really? That was a very, you know, uh, our, our early VAR, was it MFJ or something like that? Um, uh, did this great CRM system uh, system in it, and and it's great because in CRM you want to modify it to the way you sell and and track leads and things like that. Um, and now he's so building up. That's great. Yeah, and well, he took the best of it and did a service based you know thing. So. So in any case, in this era, I'm thinking about this dynamic thing about how. Whoop. Just before you continue, I, sure. I want to get your your ideas on this. Uh, there's this concept now that email has effectively died because of lack of sender authentication and, and massive spam injections and so on. So I've got this running bet with people that we're moving towards more of a notes kind of capability where you'll build up federations of groups that are allowed to actually uh, have open communication. And then you'll have rule sets that'll bound kind of that the intergroup communication with others. What do you think about this idea? It's a tough question to answer because I think email email has it depends on what you mean by email has died. It's the email is the default communication medium of choice, and it will be, I think, for quite some time. But in certain generational uh, things, people don't use it anymore, or never used it, or just use it for their communication with their teachers and stuff. Um, but I, I buy what you're saying about people clustering into groups around what they're working on, but I don't think it'll happen through federated email. It'll happen through workspaces in a different medium. Um, and that's a great segue into the fact that with Groove, the concept, what, with Notes, what the centralized concept was a Notes database. And the Notes database is a shared space, just like this board or this board is a shared space for this group. It's a shared virtual space where we assemble people, information, and tools to get something done. And, and it happens to be virtual. Um, uh, that is the core paradigm that is successful in Notes, in SharePoint, in Groove, in every major computer-supported collaborative work product in, in in collaborative design systems from you know any of the major you know uh, uh, you know vendors matrix or you know uh, it's all about creating a space around the thing that you're collaborating and so I think whether it's web-based whether it's it's peer-to-peer -peer, whether it's this and that I think workspace I buy that concept but I don't necessarily believe anymore that email is the place that that will happen because it's so heterogeneous right now that you can no longer change the standard to add this feature or that feature. It's just it's it's you know it's just out there too heterogeneous. So in this time frame, 
I'm, try, I'm thinking to myself, what kind of an environment technologically could I build to make it really easy for dynamic work groups to form across enterprise boundaries? The problems we had in Notes were that you needed a Notes server and you needed to get the partner's <coughs> IT organization to get a Notes server in, and if you had 200 companies that needed to work together, it could, it could be impossible. You know, there's, it, there, it just, the amount of time that it takes to coordinate getting everything done, doing cross-certification of, of all these different keys to make sure the federation, you know, everybody securely federated. It just was really, really bad. And what you really wanted to do was to enable people to do the same grassroots stuff that you could do within a group, within a department, but across firewall boundaries and across all the nastiness that is the, you know, this nascent internet. So one day I'm sitting at home harassing my son uh, who was, you know, this big at the time, and he was into Quake. That was Quake, not Doom, right? Yeah. And I was just blown away. I just couldn't get him off of Quake, and at and I started talking to him. I mean, this is over many months, and and as it turned out, Quake. This he was playing Capture the Flag in in Quake, and. I knew there was no centralized, I was pretty familiar with interactive gaming from the Plato stuff, but I knew there was no centralized service he was, he was using. Uh, the way that this was working was people were hosting the Quake server on their PC, on a PC in their house, and were dynamically forming groups in more or less a peer fashion. And I was watching how he was coordinating with these other people to go capture the flag, you know. Uh, they, they use this little uh, voice add-in called Roger Wilco, and he'd say, hey, go hide it over here, and I'll come over there, and I'll do this, and this, and this. And if there was ever anything that was a dynamic, effective collaboration environment, you know, this was it. This was absolutely it. And at the same time, my daughter was using um, AOL Instant Messenger, and I started to... That's a different subject. I'll just stay with the Quake thing right now. So... <laughs> I just basically started going, okay, what is, what can I learn about this architecturally? Is there some way to bring architecture together um, in a peer way that wouldn't require IT to get involved to get these work groups, uh, you know, working with one another? So I did this group thing, and I'm sorry this isn't um, uh, working right now in terms of... Uh, uh, this was Flash. This was Flash before. <laughs> But in a client-server environment, it's an RPC-based environment. But in Groove, essentially, it's a message queuing environment. The fundamental architecture is message queuing. So any, if I could get a change that you did it, within a collaborative workspace published out as a message in a message queue and, that, and asynchronously somehow tunnel that message through firewalls, um, you know, I could essentially get these these if I could get this multi-master sync problem, you know, worked out, um, uh, you know, I could do a collaborative workspace without the notion of any server at all. And so this is essentially what we did. It took a lot of people. There are, at some point, it would be anybody who's really interested, I would love to give you documents because there are some people who are into computer-supported collaborative work who understand the novel nature of the of the technology and, and what was done but it, but in essence it's a you know a collaborative editing system with an application framework that lets you build arbitrary apps on it but it's 
it's masterless and fully decentralized and fully asynchronous. You can pull things, you know, off the network, work offline, plug it back in. Everything, you know, resynchronizes. Uh, a, you know, guaranteed consistent state uh, uh, amongst all peers, and it and it just works. You, you if you downloaded it today. You don't. It, everything is encrypted by default. There's no knobs to turn. Everything is encrypted to disk. Everything is encrypted on the wire. It has all sorts of different uh, authentication models, from self-certified to organizational issued, you know, PKI. It's just a. It's a very robust model, and the paradigm is virtual office. That's essentially what we we're trying to do. We were basically saying this is a something that you can work with that you can keep all sorts of stuff in in various workspaces and work with other people virtually um, over the network. Um, so to yep. comment on the program, I remember when you were doing this, telling me that it's much more common now for people to think in terms of event-based programming. Mm -hmm. But back when you were doing this, we thought of entry point, were, 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 right. were, exit. And we're saying how hard it was to find people with the mindset yeah. to build this message-chewing paradigm where you're hanging around waiting for events. That yeah. it's, it's, it's asynchronous from totally from the ground up. There was a, because we had a fresh code base, because it was brand new to the internet, we just basically said some very key tenets like no weight cursor. You design the entire product from the ground up so that everything internally is asynchronous so that you have a very clean model view, you know, controller uh, type uh, architecture. Everything is a, um, asynchronous both Within and across uh, computers, and it it just feels good, it, it, you know, when you use it. And uh, so, so we started selling this thing. We we achieved some level of success, and I'll just tell you another story, just so you can see the nature of where it it, it might be used. On March fifteenth, two thousand three, um, I get a call. I'm at a, my summer home up in New Hampshire. And I get a call from this Navy doctor who I had heard um, was using Groove within his own, uh, he travels a lot and he was coordinating a bunch of his team with Groove. And he was in, um, he was in Iraq. And, um, or no, he wasn't in Iraq. He was in, he was in Kuwait. And he said, um, Ray, you know, we'd met before. Um, I'm sitting here with uh, 30 different NGOs, um, and we know that this Thursday we're going to invade. It hasn't been announced yet, but we're going to invade uh, Iraq. And my job and the job of these NGOs is to come in after the troops, hours after, and provide aid to assess the damage that's been done figure out how many hospital beds are needed, how many units of plasma, how many the water situation, this, that, and the other, and to all come together as 30 multinational things and help people after you know we've gone and blown things up. And we have a little problem. We've been working for three months on a schema, and the schema is a paper form. And we finally reached agreement by forcing function, because this is going to happen, on the paper form. But nobody knows how to, n nobody is in agreement how to get the paper forms to the front line, from the front line. This is how it was done in the old days. In the old days, we had encrypted walkie talkies. We would fill out the form, 
they, they're encrypted because they don't want to let either side know what the actual situation is. But we don't have encrypted radios that work across all the NGOs because of this that, and the other. We're freaked out. The only thing we all have is we all have sat phones, and we can all get to the internet, and we all have laptops. So um, uh, I was thinking we could take that paper form and transliterate it into a Groove form um, and just put Groove on everybody's laptop. What do you think? Can you help us do this? We have to have the forms done by tomorrow um, because people are deploying. They're forward deploying you know, to wherever they needed to go. So we built this form. That's the paper form that that you know we transliterated as a rapid assessment form, and you know you circle this and you do this stuff. But we basically did it that Sunday. He took a USB key drive, and they went from each to each person who had a laptop, and they made sure that they did a test on the local LAN, you know, in the tent, and then up to the satellite thing. Because of Groove's architecture, it works equally well on any bandwidth from, you know. 9600 baud or 4800 baud satellite phone all the way up. So they just did it. And they brought together, you know, just tons of people. I don't know if you can see this, but there's just, it's, you can't read it, but there's just many, 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 many different people and different organizations. And it worked. It, they, they went out and it brought, it brought people together. <coughs> Felt really good in the middle of this bad thing that's happening that, that, you know, it worked. And, Suddenly, the word started to get out within NGOs that this thing works. It's encrypted. Nobody can look at it, out, even if they have access to the satellites. And you know, it takes five minutes to learn. I mean, literally, they were walking around with a USB memory stick, giving people 15 minutes of training, and telling them what to do. They didn't have to understand the whole thing. They just did it. And it started to be used in many other things. One of the other, you know, key things that it was used for. I mean, it was used for hundreds of different applications. Um, one of the biggest challenges that was not written about much was that the green zone was relatively safe. This is in the weeks and months afterwards. The green zone was relatively safe, but they were trying to stand up ministries and an embassy and all these different things. And in order to communicate with the people in other embassies or in, in other parts of the government, you had to go outside the green zone and get in an armored thing and subject yourself to physical harm. Guess what? They just gave them all groove, and they started actually using, you know, technology to coordinate getting together. And we had to, we had a third party come in who had an Arabic um, uh, chat translation tool. So in the groove chat tool, that one would type something in, and it would come out, you know, in 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 English, and then they'd type something back. And it was it was it was fairly impressive. That grew into lots of communication amongst NGOs and amongst the government and so on. And so eventually um, it ended up being used within the government uh, in, in a number of different ways and so on. So all I can say is they, this never would have been able to be done with um, by throwing... In order to do this with web technologies or with client-server technologies, you would have had to throw the server in the back of the Jeep um, and and go out there, and it just never would have happened. And one of the most fundamental things um, that the NGOs said was, we don't trust any organization to own the data. 
we all must have equal access to the data. It's a political thing. It's a, it's a, they, they're competing organizations. They, it's just a very odd situation. And the same is true in the government, the NSA, the FBI, the CIA. Nobody wants to acknowledge that somebody else is hosting the data for them. They all want to be equal participants. And so centralized architectures don't work for certain organizational frameworks. So now let me change the subject totally. Yep. Okay, Peter Newport is a friend of mine. Yep. And this is a guy at Microsoft who's uh, in charge of figuring out what the sort of healthcare business model might be. Mm -hmm. And the big question is who owns the electronic medical record? Right. And the only reasonable solution is the patient owns it mm -hmm. because there is no incentives for different hospitals to collaborate mm -hmm. because I don't want to make it easy if I'm the big incumbent, if I'm UW Medical Center, I don't want to make it easy for you, for my patients to walk over to Swedish. Right. Okay? Right. So, and, and in some sense, HIPAA says the patient owns their own medical record, but this isn't implemented. So this sounds like that story, right? In some funny way. It, it, it is. Um, <laughs> it's difficult. It's not, it is in theory, but in practice to, to actually do that, you need, um, it, you need a standard that is much more. You need a standard, yeah. it's still this question of who owns the data. I agree with that, yes. There are all these issues. So we learned many, many, many lessons from this experience, and I'm just going to give you a few. We didn't try to solve all collaboration problems known to man with Groove. We, had, we knew that, we were, that there were big companies like Microsoft who had things like SharePoint that solved a broad variety of centralized collaboration things. We were very focused on the edge. And I'm just going to go through a couple of these. I have, I mean, there are so many lessons that you learn. Um, the, the, the DOD in particular is, was fascinated by the, um, the question of does decentralized technology subvert command and control? And it's a it's a really interesting topic in in and of itself and and well whatever but in 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 achieving value from this you know from a I'll, I'll read this in case you, you can't see it but in achieving value from this collaborative system real time shared activity awareness catalyzes swarming um, yielding quantitative and qualitative benefits so what I mean by that is. Groove has, these are truly patterns that you can apply to other products. This is just stuff that we learned with Groove. Groove has this interesting user interface um, device that we didn't realize the power of it when we implemented it, and that is that we display the number, the, the member list of, that, of a given workspace when you open it up, and it's just the members of that space, and we change the, the icon and the color and stuff based on whether you are right now working, in, whether that other person is working in that same space and they have the window on their, on their screen. Um, we also have, um, well, we noticed immediately when that happened that the same thing happened, began to happen online that happens in real life when you have an office that has a window next to it, meaning somebody walks by and they see that you're not busy or that you're working on something or that you're meeting with so-and-so and you realize that you can reduce the coordination cost by just walking in 
and joining the conversation and talking to them because you know they're they're you know contextually where their head is at at that moment in time. So we noticed real life swarming. We've talked about swarming, you know, in, in CSCW for quite a while. It really happened. You'd notice that that so and so is in the space, so and so is in the space, and what we did was we added audio alerts and um, pop-up alerts that are customizable on a per tool per workspace basis or and per person. So I could say if Richard Eckel comes into this space, make this noise. Or if somebody adds some new data to this space, make a noise. And and what it does is it draws people together very, very, very effectively and you get you reduce the coordination cost. That's real. This is this is a pattern that, that other UIs should take into account. This is the point that 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 you were making earlier. Um, you know, workspace uh, customization drives value because of users' ability to rapidly shape their own working environment. And it's not in here. Maybe it's in another slide, but but this concept of trust and ownership um, uh, because they've shaped their environment is a very material um, thing. And organizations, you start with this, and then once you introduce this into organizations, they then achieve incremental value above it by connecting their backend systems into it. A lot of those things that I showed you that happened in Iraq started very dynamically, and then the Red Cross, for example, would say, wait, we have a whole bunch of people back home who want to see what's going on in this space. So they would connect in through a connector, and suddenly the stuff that was in the space, a limited set of it, was republished into SharePoint, and the and a much larger group could see the activity that was going on out in the field. Elements of success, you know, there there has to be um, uh, um, in a high stress environment of a a visceral need to to work together. Otherwise, it's a dead workspace. People don't go and work in something because somebody told them. The most successful space workspaces are ones where um, uh, where people feel the compelling need to do. And by the way, that was a lesson learned also in. Um, in notes email, people, when you ask them if they collaborate in email, they always say no because they think that they're doing email for themselves. It's a personal tool. And the more you can make a collaboration tool feel like you're getting personal <coughs> value out of it selfishly, then other people will get value out of it. Everybody makes a collectively selfish decision and it ends up benefiting everyone. Oh, this is it, right here. Although participants in the workspace have a shared objectives, a shared objective, individuals only participate if they selfishly find value in doing so. And trust yields participation because of safety, a feeling of safety, especially important across boundaries. When you're in an emergency management situation and you're needing to do work with somebody who you don't know, you don't know if they're a bozo, you don't know if they're gonna be disruptive, It. it you, you want to make sure you only invite people to spaces that, or you get to know people and set up a, a set up trust within that within that environment. So that, I mean, this is just like a little snapshot. There were just lots. All, all I can tell you is there's immense value in this edge-based stuff. Um, another lesson, which I'm not going to bother to write up here, but. Organizations have a really difficult time appreciating this. 
people do. People get it. But the only way organizations, even to this day, the only way that large organizations value this is when some high-profile person within the company tells some story and acts, takes a personal risk and is a personal champion for edge-based tools. Organizations who do central procurement think about organizational value and they really don't don't appreciate the the, 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 the edge value. Did you have is that like a terrible question? Did you have sociologists working with you or did sociologists study this or does this just sort of become obvious even to geeks as they see how the technology is used? We didn't have sociologists or anthropologists or any anybody like that really doing it. There was one. There were some people at Harvard Business School and uh, or no, where was Wanda uh, Orlikowski at MIT? There were some people in the computer-supported cooperative work realm and in the business school realm who have done studies of this, but not at the level of. What, for example, people studying what's going on in MySpace or Friendster, or, you know, things like that. Um, this predated interest by that community. What was happening? Yes, it predated it, and it's also people. Um, I don't. I don't. I can't tell you why people don't study collaboration within business more because of the value involved in collaboration in business. Um, but I don't believe there is a huge. Um, this kind of stuff is known by people at, at the fringe within the computer-supported cooperative work community, um, but not much beyond that. Left field question from Berkeley. Yep. Um, so this is all at the level of individual human beings, but the Homeland Security business has this notorious problem that the FBI and the CIA and 65,000 other partners fight over what they'll divulge and over formats and over everything else. Could something like this work at the level of organizations where there's suddenly an incentive to get your data contributed to the pot because maybe you'll be blamed or something if, if you don't? The way they try to solve this now is they're all having sit-down meetings to work out the rules in advance. And with 65,000 people, that seems hopeless. On the other hand, if there was a sense in which they viewed it in their selfish interest to... Um, to, to show what they could contribute. Maybe you could shift the dynamic. Does this work for organizations as well as people? <laughs> I know. Left my, my problem is I have, I have real data on this one topic, and, I, and, and unfortunately it doesn't make me happy. Um, uh, we sold, Groove was sold into Department of Homeland Security. Um, it was deployed to... 20,000. It, 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 it was deployed in an architecture that involved both centralized web publishing and decentralized kind of um, layers of, of workspaces, meaning a hierarchy, meaning the people at the top were, you know, at the, at the core emergency management centers and the, and the uh, you know, TTFs and people like that were in one set. Then a state would have, you know, a set of things. Then, then the state would manage communication with local, and each one had shared members. And they tried to use the, the spaces as a mechanism of feeding information up and then publishing, you know, out. It's very interesting. And government 
bureaucracy is just breathtaking. That's all I can say. I mean, I mean, the 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 technology work works and worked. The um, uh, the processes were sound, um, uh, but the number of careers that were on the line, the number of people who find reasons not to work together with one another resemble that thing that I was saying about the NGOs agreeing on a schema. You, you, you know, it, it, if there's a dysfunctional bureaucracy, the technology isn't, in, at least in this case, even grassroots technology is not um, helping to solve it. I mean, one of my favorite examples is there were some terror suspects in Buffalo that maybe you read about. Um, uh, I think there were eight guys who were in a little cell. And what happened was New York, ta Dallas, and FBI decided to use Groove as a trial to see how whether they could share information in, in doing an investigation related to terror. And it worked. They they found these these guys really quickly. They went and 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 uh, this is all a story that's being related to me. I don't have personal knowledge of this because it was a classified environment. Um, but the um, uh, I, I can't tell you exactly what they knew or when they knew it. But these people within a, a very short amount of time figured this out. The lawyers from the agencies heard about this, shut it down just totally shut it down and said this will never happen again because the the because they weren't consulted in the processes of whether they should have permission to exchange that information across those organization boundaries and so then the lawyers between the agencies got groove and started working with one another <laughs> there you go question from um, UCSD um, my question is, uh, is this academic or do you draw a distinction between communication tools, collaboration tools, and cooperation tools? Um, you know, I do, but just, it's just the choice of the tag that I, that, I, that I put on it. When I talk about communication, I generally think of a, um, of a channel, you know, between uh, between two people or, you know, a very, I think of communication as, as something where the context of the um, interaction is in the minds of the people who are working together, not assisted substantively by the medium in which you're communicating. This is a gray, you know, there's a, there's a gray area in between, but let's just start with that. When you get to effective tools for computer-supported cooperative work, it almost always involves some sort of a shared space, a shared view of something that you're using to maintain the context, to enhance the context about which you're conversing. So, so you know, I, in a phone conversation, I'm, everything I'm, I'm talking to you about is in, is the context is in our minds, and the communication channel is a, is just, Carrying the the signal between you know between us, I just think collaboration technology is more oriented toward toward using the technology to enhance the context. I don't know if that helped. 
So, so Groove was bought by Microsoft. Um, uh, I have a lot of thoughts about about where collaboration technology should go. Um, independent of my current role at Microsoft, when I came on board, I was like a kid in a candy store because essentially I had been working on one uh, uh, domain, one type of collaboration modality in Groove that was very edge-focused, very peer-focused, but it's not the complete picture. You need other uh, other forms. In order to have an effective uh, collaborative interaction, you need audio conferencing so that you can get nuances of whether somebody's angry or whether they're happy or, you know, they're, that, that, that modality is important. Um, you need uh, uh, publishing types of, of modalities. There are just many different uh, forms of technology that are useful in different ways when, when mixed together, when mashed up. Um, to do different forms of, of interaction. And Microsoft had, has been investing significantly in this as a specific uh, area of competence. Um, since that time, um, you know, uh, I've gotten much more into this services thing, and I won't really talk a whole lot about this, but it's very important in my, in, in my mind. Right now, I think we're at a juncture um, in our industry. We've been... Um, at least since I've been in the industry, there have been several major trans industry transitions based on the steady progress of technology. You know, microprocessors happened. I talked about that earlier. That was a big, I mean, I guess mainframes to minis, minis to PCs, PCs to, to LANs. You know, these are all major technology transitions that let us as architects thoughtfully consider what's the best architecture to accomplish a given solution with this new technology architecture. Right now, one of these is happening, um, and it's because of the confluence of factors about um, you know, how computing power um, you know, continues to increase. It's not so much on single processors at this point in time. It'll go to multi-core and many-core, but it continues in aggregate to increase. You know, memory keeps getting cheaper. Um, you know, storage is just, you know, it, it's just amazing to me that we're going to have terabyte hard disks, you know, in our desktops, 100 gig, you know, in our 200 gig in our laptops or camcorders. Um, it's, it's incredible. And in terms of communication costs, um, this has also happened, uh, you know, such that we don't even think about the cost of doing things with people across the country or across the world, whether it's voice or data. And, and all of this really um, enables us to reconsider what's the right architecture, what's the best architecture for delivering a solution that might have some rich component at the user interface and potentially some rich component up you know, in the cloud somewhere. And that is enabling us to consider should we build fundamentally um, build massive data centers as resources that are abstract resources up in, in the cloud, out on the internet, and thoughtfully architect different types of solution, rebalancing some functions up there, some functions uh, on edge devices, and so on. And, um, you know, so, so, you know, I think this is, this is going to impact both consumer things as well as, as enterprise things. On the consumer side, um, 
you know, as I said, media devices. I mean, we've got this broad range of media devices now, from you know iPods and Zooms to uh, uh, you know little media center uh, things to media centers in our in our homes um, to PCs, camcorders again, digital digital cameras. I'm sure everybody now you know uses digital cameras, and the architecture for presentation and sharing of that media is dramatically different depending on the collaboration, the sharing scenario, the consumption scenario that you want. For example, for produced media, like from Hollywood, the right quote-unquote architecture is to centrally maintain libraries, vast libraries of this media, and to cache it on devices. So if you lose the device, you just get another, you know, copy of the cache, you know, the cache, another cache copy on another device and so on. But for your own personal media, it's exactly the inverse. You take your pictures, you, you know, you might load them onto your PC. Pictures are small enough where you could replicate them completely in the cloud. But home movies, I don't know if you've done it, but I've, I have ripped every one of my videos now that goes all the way back to when my kids were, you know, really small and it's I have to have a 2.8 terabyte um, you know server in my house now that's just going to be a couple of discs in a PC um, in a couple of years but the upload bandwidth uh, you know but uh, from my home up to the cloud is pretty slow still and to dribble you know all of that stuff up it's going to take quite a quite a while so I believe you know that that the architecture for personal media may be, may settle out as multiple PCs in a home replicating for reliability your personal media and sharing cache copies up into the service um, where you share those cache copies out to other people. And so for every app that we do, I, I feel as though at this point in time we're at a juncture where all of the things that we're going to be doing for consumers and for businesses are going to somehow be composite applications between, between things on the client, things in the service, things on enterprise servers, um, and so on. Um, you know, in business, this has never been more relevant. To the point made earlier, um, you know, most major enterprises now ha are doing collaborative design and co and di and and different business processes all over the world. Um, you know, it's not just India and China. They're just different, you know, areas that are clusters for for different aspects of, of business and, and we can use technology and architecture to design collaborative solutions for those specific things. If it's marketing people, it'll be you know, marketing related tools. If it's engineering and d design, it'll be you know, those forms of tools. And there are very, there are, because we're now getting more mature in the use of these collaborative technologies, there are lots of different almost semi-vertical styles of use of these, these, these collaborative technologies within different domains. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm not sure how many of these things, you know, you guys are familiar with, but um, in terms of business intelligence, companies now want to not only look at the real-time status of their own systems and their own process, their own inventory, they want to reach out and through into partners worldwide. and. This, this isn't just if you're a channel master like Walmart where you're a big company with lots of people serving you. There are many, many, many situations where you have lots of little companies who are working together who are codependent, who really need to understand the status of each other's systems. 
in the in the um, professional services space, the dream now of auditors um, is to actually instrument the companies that they're auditing, so that instead of doing a periodic review of the books, they're watching everything as it's happening, and kind of acting as a real-time monitor of what's you know of what's going on. And it's it it's scary in some ways, but it's the natural progression. Of, of the kinds of things you know that are going on, and they could ask a question of somebody, you know, kind of in real time. Well, what do you mean about you know what does that mean? So I, I have a kid. I, I won't explain the background to this, but he's currently mm -hmm. running a Starbucks store in Washington D.C. Really? And Starbucks does that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have instantaneous insight into what's going on. And if he's got somebody ripping him off, the people back in Master Control know this before right. he does. Right. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I don't know where. Use of technology for business process ends and collaboration begins because collaboration contextually is kind of woven into the workflow of, of these different things. But suffice it to say that that I believe that these things are relevant more than ever, and and you know we haven't even kind of. I mean, you could either view it as well now it's in the fabric of everything, so it's not worth talking about anymore, or Wow, we haven't even scratched the surface yet because there are all these new technologies coming out. Look at this, you know, these conferencing systems that Cisco has. Look at the real-time stuff that Microsoft is doing. Um, there are lots of new technology innovations that will let people take different, you know, angles of, as to how people work together. Let me ask about corporate collaboration, though. Does it tend to be peer-to-peer, -peer, or does there tend to be a hierarchy? It depends on the industry and the sub-industry. There are um, uh, clusters. If you just go to China in a given, uh, uh, you know, Shenzhen or something like that, there'll be you'll see a group of manufacturers who have clustered together because they need to work with one another, and they might do a sub-assembly within a hierarchical process. So it's it's kind of it's kind of both. So that's really it. I don't, you know, I've kind of been rambling for quite a while, but uh, um, uh, it's been a it's been a fun ride, and uh, um, it's an area that that interests me quite a bit. So. Just take a minute and see if yeah. people down south have questions. Absolutely. Questions at San Diego. Got anything left down there? I have a question. Uh, I've been wanting to ask this because we have wikis that we use for this class, and I wanted to, to get just your take on wikis, uh, what you think they're maybe good for, and uh, if you think that they're worth the hype. Wow. <laughs> wikis are one of these things that, had you told me, based on my experience, uh, past experiences, if you had told me, you were going to take something that had read-write editing ability and anonymous access, and throw it up in the, on the internet and have you know have it actually you know be productive. I, I, I would have said you're nuts, <laughs> but but it's amazingly useful for certain for certain things. I mean I, I mean everybody will point to Wikipedia, but I really do believe that there are when you're when you have a set of information that that needs to be structured, but people don't really know how to structure it a priori, it's a great work pad for people to go in and start juggling information and reorganizing it. 
Um, uh, you know, I think it's I, I I don't know about the the total hype because there are things like Jotspot um, uh, that go from Wiki into forms-based application land, and then you're more in the like the Notes apps or SharePoint, and then you're down the slippery slope of all those things that I was saying in Notes about the corporation wanting to control the schema and so on. So. I mean, I believe in team sites. I believe in wikis. I don't know if I believe in the. I'm not yet sold on the mashup of those of those two. So, so this isn't quite collaboration. But have you thought about the reason for the rise and fall of these sort of the various Friendster type? Sites. I have no idea what causes these things to be hot and then right. <coughs> go cold. And, and God, that's such a fun topic to talk about. <laughs> it social networks in general are, you know, that I'll just start with some basic tenets that are useful tenets. I think number one, you can't have a social networking site, in my humble opinion. Um, uh, you can't you can't create one unless you are a member of the community that you're building it for. So the reason Facebook is so successful is that it was built by, you know, Mark as a college student, and he understands the things that I forget about the the things that are meaningful and how people interact and what they're looking for on a daily basis and how. People are interested in what happened at the party that I missed, and and you know there are just things that that are very you can tune the user experience directly for that um, uh, for that thing, and I think there that that you could equally build a a social community for uh, uh, you know. High school sports. You could build one for, or high, parents of high school, you know, or grandma, you know, soccer parents. Uh, you could build one for any community very effectively. That is an identifiable community if you're one of the people in there. But in the realm of kids, I'll just tell you a story of what happened. What my daughter told me um, a few weeks ago on Parents Weekend at UPenn. Um, She's been a Facebook person for ages, ages upon ages. And um, uh, I, I'm also in Facebook, and I, I watch what goes on with and I'm, all of her friends, and you know, are, are, are friended me, and so, and so, um, uh, I noticed that the nature of what is being done on there is a little bit less risque now than it was a year ago or nine months ago. I said, what's up? What's going on? And she goes, oh, well, now, now it's so popular now, and so many kids have been busted by faculty and by, you know, by the schools, whatever, that it's very common knowledge now amongst kids who get it um, that there are shadow sites. And for, for a given you know, set of people, there's both a shadow site on web shots or some here or there or there, a private thing, and they maintain both the, 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 the Facebook one because they know if they disappeared from it, the parents are going to go looking for them. Um, uh, and, and so they just maintain these parallel things. And 
I think this is just the nature of the beast. The, the people adapt to the social environment that they're within. And if things, something grows too successful, it's this tragedy of the commons thing or whatever, but it will, I mean, in my, in my view, in that age group or in that world, um, because you're subject to the man again, you know, um, I think that's going to be a very dynamic uh, thing. It's hard to unseat the network, but I think that the shape of the network changes you know, quite a bit. So how much of a role do you think tools for content creation play? These sites to me seem different in the ease of Huge, and I have this one that creates spreadsheets and word processing documents and presentations that I'd love to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think it's I think they play a huge role. I mean, uh, the you know my history in this industry, Microsoft's history, is in the computer lib, you know, uh, uh, you know era where you where we believe that 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 these are tools of personal empowerment, and that and we're in an era where if the PC uh, industry started in documents being the the thing that was the content of choice that you were doing or spreadsheets or small databases today it's media you know we've got digital cameras digital whatever and the PC has turned into a digital media you know organization and an editing device as much or more as it you know ever was documents and so I think that's it's it's hugely important what kind of creation you do is highly personal some people are not real extroverts and will not contribute a lot to online forums and will you know will internalize a lot in terms of, of their nature of participation and I don't think you can expect that everyone is going to be alike in that kind of um, uh, you know in terms of creation question from Microsoft so so you have talked a lot about how we can collaborate with others, and, uh, and really there is so much information that we receive every day, right? You know, the blogs, wikis, a hundred emails a day. Uh, where do you see us going as far as filtering and uh, maybe prioritizing all that information for us so that we don't spend so much time just kind of like, okay, in the morning, I, you know, I spend like two, two hours you just know. checking what emails are important and which ones aren't, right? Yeah. I'll tell you what I'd like to happen, but I don't know if it will happen. Um, uh, when we were at um, at Groove as a small company, it was you know 200, 250 people. Um, we built Groove, so we were we actually were extremely adept users of Groove. And at Groove, I was getting an extremely small volume of email because. Almost everything that I was doing was in a, was had had to do with some project that was in a workspace of some sort, and and I mean sure there were some there were people who wrote in unsolicited <laughs> there were there were you know things related to scheduling, but if you were working on a project of you know bringing this product to market, doing this design, figuring out the product name for this thing, it's always something that you could spin up something lightweight, do it, keep all the information about that thing together. And then throw it away when you were when you were done with it. Much more effective medium for collaborative work than email. Which ironically, it's just so. When I think about email, I think of a funnel, and you start with all these people who are working together on the same project. 
They, they share the same documents. They're responding to each other, and they know what context they're in. Instead of putting it into a shared environment, they throw it into a queue where it gets intermixed with all sorts of other garbage, and, and it goes through this bottleneck where then you have to sort it out again into what is high priority, what's medium priority. In Groove, because the creator of the content pre-classifies the stuff for this project in this tool within this workspace, you could tune your unread marks on a per-tool basis. So for stuff that, that comes in that I don't really care about the surgeon, I just turn it off. And I wouldn't psychologically be drawn to it on a daily basis because it wasn't important to me. I knew people were talking in there, but I'd just go there when I was interested in it. For stuff that was really hot, I would turn it up and have it do pop-ups. And, and, and I don't think email gives us... I think the nature of the medium is a difficult medium. So I guess I would just say my answer is let's move the world toward more of a workspace model if we can. People have tried to put workspaces inside of email, but emails basically, as we said earlier, it, because of its heterogeneity, none of those efforts have taken off. There was this company called Kubi um, uh, who tried to create workspaces within the, the you know, the within Outlook, but then there were the notes users and the Hotmail users and so on. Question from Microsoft? Question from Microsoft? Yeah. One of the most effective collaboration tool, uh, I would say, is the telephone. And uh, the, the companies, the network companies, have spent 100 years to perfect their network, and, and it's at a very high reliability today. But in collaboration software, network actually is considered to be a commodity. Uh, do you think when we have more audio and video in those collaboration tools, network will still be a commodity, or will we have some intelligence, some bandwidth reservation, or maybe a parallel network? Um, this is personal speculation, but I just think it, the answer is temporal. You know, today, to use Cisco's new video conferencing thing, you need a, a 10 megabit link on one provider, you know, on, on the same provider, um, whereas with email, we don't, <laughs> or, or with uh, Skype or something like that. So, so um, I think temporally, I'll just say, I don't believe in in reservations and quality of service guarantees, I believe you throw bandwidth, <clears throat> excess bandwidth at the problem. And I think that over time, bandwidth will get high enough that people will just... I, I don't think we're going to return to a world of, of measured um, usage. I think we're, we're just going to fat pipes. Question for Microsoft. <clears throat> One of the things you mentioned is that we want to really restructure a lot of the applications that are built so that you've got a local piece, maybe a piece that roams with you, and then a piece that's in a, a corporate server. One of the challenges, I think, for application writers, whether they're at a large corporation or they're doing small things on their own, is that they've got to learn about lots of different technologies and build up a diverse skill set in order to be successful at that. They have to run operations, they have to host yep. a server, and so on. Do you expect that there are going to be a set of common facilities that service providers can, can uh, put out there that will make this easier and people can just focus on their business problem and then the rest of the stuff is there already? Um, uh, who put you up to asking that question? 
Yeah, that I mean the 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 aspiration is that there is a services platform in the um, you know that I know that Microsoft will provide. Um, I'm sure others will will you know do similar things, but um, uh, ideally there are certain app patterns. They won't be the same as the ones that are you know on an enterprise server because they probably we want to probably do scale. Excuse me, limited, more scale-free design patterns for those apps. But um, I think that that um, the a cloud-based computing and storage platform um, and other things, monetization and so on, um, uh, will be used in a composite app kind of way um, uh, by many, 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 many different classes of apps in the in the future. So yes. Anything from your end, Steve? I think we're good. San Diego, <laughs> you good? Anybody else? Um, I have one thing I wanted to bring up. Oh, uh, is that feeding back? Okay. Um, <clears throat> have you thought about, and, and I'm afraid that this might be one of those situations where um, the, the difficult problems are social and not technical, but have you thought about um, technical or technological assistance for group decision making, um, in particular with groups larger than, you know, just a few members who could kind of like sit down in a room and and talk things out. But I don't know about you know maybe standards deliberations or yeah. even just kind of democracy on a kind of medium scale. Companies maybe using it to get feedback from their employees about big decisions and things like that. I don't know. Yeah, there there are people who have um, done this for many years. There was a company called GDDM Group Decision. There have been a number of decision support tools that have been built. The one that is my favorite, of course, it's the last one that I played with. Um, uh, there's a, a little ISV um, who built a um, a suite of tools that are called the, the, the peace tools, and they're used between um, the Tamil Tigers and the Sri Lankan government. Um, uh, they've been used, and I believe they're still in use, to negotiate um, peace accords. It doesn't look like it's working really well right now. <laughs> but, um, but it's very oriented toward the language and protocols of, of uh, of such negotiations, and I don't. I mean, there's a guy who works for the UN who um, uh, who understands the processes, who worked with this I, this ISV to build this uh, this set of negotiation tools. But I think it's it's extremely useful. But I'll say I haven't seen it done yet in a broadly um, horizontal way. Um, um, you know, there there are decision support tools within the government, within the military, I know. Um, uh, outside the realm of decision support, one of the first most spectacular failures of, um, uh, of software in this realm was a thing called Coordinator, which was um, Fernando Flores. Um, uh, it was a commitment management uh, tool, but it was essentially email with that tracking your commitments so that it would just continuously bug you. You know, it would apply process onto your email communications and it was just really <laughs> tough, tough, yeah. Thank you. Yep. Thanks.